fellow passengers. <laughs> yeah, it's that kind of a day. Welcome to the Midnight Train, America's second favorite podcast, where we bring the dark to light, where history never dies, and where listener discretion is always at Vizzled. I totally knew that was coming. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, if you're, listen, if you're new, we make fun of and joke about creepy and unsolved mysteries all across this great big globe of ours, right? All while bringing you as much information on each topic as possible. At least as much as we can do yeah. while having real jobs. Correct. Well, at least one of us. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, we are a comedy podcast, or so we seem to think. And stuff can get kind of dark with the topics we do discuss. So if you're not into that, listen, we get it. No hard feelings. But uh, we'd like you uh, to give it a try. And then we'd like you to tell all your friends. And then they tell two friends. And then they tell two friends. And mm-hmm. then they tell two friends. See how that works? Kind of. Yeah, it's an old commercial. Is, it, is, it, is there more math involved? I don't know. I don't do math. Oh, damn. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> for all you uh, coming back and listening again, thank you for being here. And thank you for returning. You guys know how we do this. Um, yeah, anyway, give it a chance, right? I'm your host, the conductor of the cryptic, Jonathan Sayer, and with me, of course, is the even blonder version of my son, Logan Sayer. Yay. I'm trying to get more into that, uh, that, that character, you know? I don't know, dude. I know, it's weird. <laughs> dude, I got out of the shower today, I and I was like, holy fuck, I can't see my eye. freaking, like, I'm so blinded by the light. It's, it's, it's You're boring. blinded by the light? Yeah. Are you revved up like a douche? Another boner in the night? <laughs> there it is. All right. <laughs> Listen, I've had a bad day, and this is going to make me feel better. Not so much what we're talking about, but just the fact that we get to talk about it. All right? So thank you for being here, and if I'm a little bit sensitive and or aggressive today, it's just because, well, it was a bad day. That's yeah. all. It's fine, and we all have them. And if you guys are having a bad day, I want you to get into this episode because it is super messed up. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. It's just, it's crazy. So uh, listen, for our Patreon this week coming up, we're actually going to be talking about the uh, the House of Medici, right? Or the Medici family over in Florence. Ooh. Yeah. And uh, the reason we're doing that is because, well, we discussed the, you know, creepy Italy and went through all that stuff and talked about that one B.A. Julius Caesar who did not mm-hmm. make the crappy dressing. No. Correct. Thankfully. We, and we learned that on the show. We did actually. Right? Yeah. yeah. So go back and listen to that. Anyway, we're going to talk about that. That's an Italian banking family and political dynasty that first consolidated power in the Republic of Florence under Cosimo de Mici. (laughs) Cosimo! (laughs) During the first half of the 15th century. And, uh, you know, a lot of people consider them dictators in the family, very dictatorial, Mm -hmm. except the, 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 the people of Florence loved them oh kind of like they love julius caesar yeah oh. they're very loyal they are the florent the, the italian people are loyal like my little spitfire she's loyal to a fault it's good yeah gotta have uh, that in your corner yes i will i didn't mean for me anyway <laughs> so yeah get over there to patreon patreon.com forward slash the midnight train podcast or go to the midnight train podcast.com our official website where you can find every and anything feasible and possible about the show but that's what we'll be talking about over on patreon Yes, all of a sudden I slipped into something weird. <laughs> Logan and I are drinking, uh, what do we got right now? This Bullet Manhattan Cocktail. It's a pre-made cocktail from Bullet. And if you guys know Bullet, they do a pretty badass bourbon. They do. So, uh, yeah, we're drinking their, uh, they got a little concoction. It's called the Bullet Manhattan. It comes in a green bottle that looks like a grenade. It does. And, and it, it's probably going to. It exploded in my mouth. Exactly. Or other place. Anyway, <laughs> that's what we're drinking. So, listen, we're going to save the rest of the BS until the end of the show. 
So we're just going to get into this. We're going to slide right into it. So let's turn down the lights, adjust our seats. I hate grab a drink because we got one. Oh, yeah. And let's get mm, irritated. Yeah, it's perfect. On this one. It's perfect. I'm very, very irritated on this one. Yeah. yeah and you'll find out. But first, here's a toast to all you beautiful motherfuckers. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to recreate for you tonight all the known facts in an actual unsolved murder. Somewhere, someone among you has had contact with a killer or killers. Someone whose identity need never be known has seen evidence or possesses information that can lead to the solution of this crime. In the public interest, the Columbia Broadcasting System offers $5,000 reward for evidence or information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer in this unsolved murder. We ask you then to please listen carefully, for you may be the one to win this reward. Somebody knows. It may be you. And now we open the files on one of this nation's unsolved murders. It's homicide file number DR-295771, the Los Angeles, California Police Department. The unsolved murder of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. Oh, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're going to Los, An- Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Yeah. Woo. That's right. We're talking about the Black Dahlia. Now, listen, a lot of people know about this. Mm-hmm. There's been numerous podcasts. There's been numerous shows, uh, movies, yes. a band oh, yeah. that called themselves after them. And they, you uh, I, you probably listen to them, don't you? They do, actually. Yeah. They're, they're a little bit too heavy for me. This a little bit? Not the music. Music. Yeah. Music's awesome. Oh, yeah. But that whole, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, sometimes I just kind of like glance over it. I just yeah. listen to you sing in my head. It's <laughs> Over that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, yeah, we're talking about Elizabeth Short, the third child of Cleo A. Short and Phoebe Mae Sawyer, and then their, their five daughters. Oh. Yeah, they had five five girls, and she's uh, right there in the mid. Right there in the middle. Right there in the middle. She was born on July 29th of 1924. See? Yeah. <laughs> Already. I told you it was going to happen. <laughs> in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts, over there in Boston. After a brief period in Portland, Maine, the Short family moved to Medford, a Boston suburb, in a 19, and that was in 1927, before losing most of his funds in the 1929 stock market crash. Mm-hmm. Oh, daddy here. Uh, yeah, her father constructed uh, miniature golf courses, Ooh. which is actually pretty cool. I actually just applied to what position where I work on a golf course in Columbia Station. A miniature golf course? I wish. That'd be amazing. That would be very... Putt-putt. They're going to be the manager of a putt-putt course? I'll be fixing the clown. <laughs> <laughs> Screw you, clown! That's a that's a that's a drink up right there. Anyway, however, it was suspected that he had uh, leaped into the Charles River after his automobile was discovered abandoned on the Charleston Bridge in 1930. Yeah, they found his car not parked. <laughs> it <bar>. wasn't packed <laughs> at all. <laughs> it was actually past the bar. <laughs> yeah, so that's what happened. So now, of course, her mother, Elizabeth's mother's here, mother here, who was completely grief-stricken, you know, she thought her husband had passed away. Well, she got a job and started working as a bookkeeper to help the family. Right? It's a good mom. Right, of course, because mom's got to step up sometimes and do they thing. Yo. Now it's obviously time for our first derail, and we're only about, I don't know, two minutes into this whole thing. Perfect. But let's talk about the 1929 stock market crash and the suicide epidemic that followed uh, just for a minute or two here. This comes from an article from History.com. Now, first of all, Logan, have you heard about this? The 
stock market crash of 1929. And well, first of all, yes. Have you heard of that? Yes. Okay. And have you heard about like the supposed suicides that were taking place constantly? Yeah. Weren't people like jumping off like buildings and shit like the day of? Well, let's talk about it. Oh, okay. The stock market crash of 1929 occurred on October 29th, 1929, which is pretty good because if they called it the stock market crash of 1940 and it happened in 1929, that wouldn't make any sense now, would it? <laughs> <sighs> Sorry. Anyway, that's when Wall Street investors traded some 16 million New York Stock Exchange shares in one single day. As a result, billions of dollars were lost in 1929. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a chunk of change. It's a bit, yeah. White, wiping out thousands of investors. Yeah. Yeah. In the aftermath of that event, sometimes called Black Tuesday, America and the rest of the industrialized world spiraled down and downward into the Great Depression, the deepest and longest lasting economic downturn in the history of the Western industrialized world to that time. That's right. This started the... Um, you're right over there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just dying slowly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did it go down the wrong pipe? Sure did. <laughs> <laughs> it bites back. It does. Uh, so yeah, basically, uh, it started the Great Depression. Right. This led to the Great Depression. So, and it was messed up. And if you guys don't know about the Great Depression, well, you should go and read a book. I'm just saying, because it was pretty messed up. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, however, contrary to popular lore, there was no academic, academic, <laughs> epidemic of suicides. Mm. Yeah, so it's actually a bunch of BS, let alone people jumping out of windows in the wake of the stock market crash of 1929. Is it kind of like the Dust Bowl wasn't actually a football team playing in dust? What? You never <laughs> heard about that? No, the Dust Bowl was just because it was barren. Everything was so barren. You, nobody had anything, the Great Dust Bowl, because it's just... Yeah, I had a project in high school where we had to actually... Please tell a, me you said it was about a football team. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I had to create a, I had to create a, a, a football team for a history class called, yeah, the, 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 the Dusties. The Dusty Bowlers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so this was this was bad, right? But obviously people were not doing this, okay? And so in the uh, United States, the suicide wave that followed the stock market crash at this time, um, is also uh, part of the legend of, you know, the great crash here. In fact, there was, uh, there was none. There was no suicides, actually. Which is crazy, because people will jump off of buildings to, <clears throat> um, uh, to you know, partake in suicide when um, their cryptocurrency dips down, you know, 5,000 points. But, Supposedly. But when the whole economy just... That's a joke, too, if you're new here. Dies. <laughs> Supposedly. So uh, this is from econ um, economist uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, who wrote a, in his book, The Great Crash of 1929. He literally was like, there were none. That's so crazy. Yeah. So Galbraith reported that the number of suicides in the U.S. in October and November of 1929 were among the lowest of any month of that year. <laughs> so when it took place, they were actually lower than normal. Interesting. The su suicide rate, in fact, had been substantially higher during the summer months before the crash. Yet, the false tales about a rash of Wall Street suicides, ha suicides had become so pervasive by mid-November of 1929 that Charles Norris, New York City's chief medical examiner, felt compelled to publicly refute them by reporting that while 44 suicides had occurred during the previous four weeks in Manhattan, that number was actually lower than the 53 recorded over the same time in 1928. Hmm. So, the same time period, year before, there was more. Oh, okay. Interesting. Right. So where did this myth of stockbrokers just jumping off of buildings and going originate? I wonder where. 
Well, quote, one contemporary reference was written by a British reporter who had been very badly burned in the market himself. This comes from a, uh, the financial and business historian John Steele Gordon, <laughs> author of An Empire of Wealth, <laughs> The Epic History of American Economic Power. That's the whole title of it. So I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't it's care. like, it's just put it all out there, buddy. Anyway, quote, he had watched the crash from the visitor gallery and reported that a body fell not far from him. The reporter's name was the one and only Winston Churchill. Ooh. Yeah. Was he smoking a stogie? <laughs> Maybe. I, <laughs> I hope so. The future British prime minister has uh, had been staying at the Savoy Plaza Hotel during his visit to New York City when he actually saw a pretty gruesome scene. Uh, quote, under my very window, a gentleman cast himself down 15 stories and was dashed to pieces, causing a wild commotion on the arrival of the fire brigade. That's what Winston Churchill actually said in London, uh, London's Daily Telegraph on December 9th of 1929. So he's there. The crash is happening. He lost money in it. Mm -hmm. And he just kind of, when he put it out there, everyone just assumed that that's what was happening. Gotcha. Right. So if Churchill is documenting the same incident, he had seen the aftermath of the fall of Dr. Otto Ma uh, Matthies. I'm going to say that. A German chemist from the hotel's 16th floor. As newspapers reported, if, even if the uh, fall wasn't accidental, the tourist death came on the uh, the morning of October 24th, hours before the market's plunge, so it could not even be contributed to the crash. Unless he knew. Oh, ooh. He was a time traveler. So he threw himself off, huh? Yep. Mm -hmm. Couldn't handle it. Mm-hmm. Screwed himself. Now, here, this is pretty awesome, by the way, because of our show here. Dark humor may have also contributed to the myth. The day after Black Thursday, many Americans read the following quip from humorist Will Rogers in their newspapers. Quote, when Wall Street took that tailspin, you had to stand in line to get a window to jump out of. And specta specula ah, speculators were selling spaces for bodies in, in the East River. It's pretty dark. I it like that, actually. Very dark. So vaudeville comedian, uh, um, uh, comedian, excuse me, Eddie Cantor, who actually lost most of his money in the crash, soon after joked that he, uh, when he requested a 19th floor room at a New York City hotel, the clerk asked him, "Quote: What for? Sleeping or jumping?" <laughs> it's I mean, come on, it's pretty. Fu it's uh, funny, but it's not at the same time. Yeah, it's it's only funny to me because there were no suicides. Right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if there were a bunch of suicides, yeah, that's that's kind of like yeah. I might even tiptoe around that one. Right. But when they're but there weren't any, mm -hmm. you know, that's funny. Come on. It's funny. It's funny. It's fucking funny. So, in fact, at least two people jumped to their deaths in Manhattan's financial district in the weeks following the 1929 crash. Hulda Borowski, a clerk who had worked for 28 years at a brokerage firm, leapt from the roof uh, of the 40-story equitable, bil equitable building on November 7th. The New York Times reported that, quote, her employers said she had uh, been near exhaustion from overwork due to the recent trading frenzy. So she was just like, this is after the fact. Right. And it wasn't because of the crap. Well, I mean, I guess it's kind of related. She was, they were working her to the bone. Right. And she's just like, fuck this. You know what I mean? That sucks. Yeah. Nine days later, 65-year-old George Cutler, head of wholesale produce for a, a wholesale produce firm and a uh, New York mercantile exchange member who had sustained heavy losses in the market, jumped from the seventh floor ledge outside his lawyer's office and landed on an automobile parked on Wall Street. Yeah, I'm sure that probably hit a lot harder than the concrete. Yeah, it probably sounded very loud. Yeah. So, yes, there were a couple of them, but it wasn't like on the day and it weren't like they weren't you know, stockbrokers just lemmings. piling out like lemmings out of a window, which, by the way, is also fake. Lemmings don't actually do that. 
There's a they they don't throw their young off the cliff and let them well just, themselves. They all follow. Supposedly they used like would fall and whatever. There was a documentary that actually had um, um they had uh, charges filed against them because they were actually taking the lemmings and throwing them off off camera. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, it's fucked up. Wow, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, <laughs> trying to like show their documentary. Yeah. yeah, it's fucking stupid. Anyway, wow, dickheads. All right. Anyway, so that yeah, that's our first little derail there, and just thought it was kind of a cool little yeah. side note to this whole thing. Didn't know that. So now Elizabeth Short here, who suffered from bronchitis and severe asthma attacks, had lung surgery at only the age of 15. Wow. Following this, her doctors advised her to periodically move to a milder uh, environment to stop further respiratory issues, which they, you know, doctors back in the day used to do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? You need to go someplace where the air is better. Not around here, see? <laughs> you smell that? That's farts. <laughs> no, Sorry. <laughs> During the following three years, Elizabeth's mother arranged for her to spend the winters with family and friends in Miami, Florida. As a result, Elizabeth left Medford High School after her second year there. Okay, so she just wasn't big into, wasn't big into school. I get it. Yeah. Her mother discovered that her presumed deceased husband, however, was alive and fucking well and had established a new life in California. <laughs> Dad of the year there, folks. Maybe he forgot who he was. Oh, maybe. Maybe he wanted to work at Bob's Burgers mm. instead of being a super international secret agent. Maybe. Yeah. It could be it. You never know. But I don't think so. Ah, oh, damn. Yeah, I'm sorry. So how did she find out about this little tidbit of information? Well, she received an apology letter from him toward the end of 1942. <laughs> <laughs> hey, sorry. I've been gone for 20 years. <laughs> Dear former wife, this may come as a shock to you, but I'm not dead. Dot, dot, dot. I'm sorry. P.S. Did you fix my car? <laughs> I don't, sorry. In a super weird turn after uh, discovering that the, you know, freaking dick track over here was still alive. And at age 18, Elizabeth moved to Vallejo, California to live with her father in December. So, hey, dad's alive. You should go with him. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> You're right. Like, immediately, I'm just, I, I, oh, whatever. Okay. She hadn't seen him since she was six years old. So 12 years later and thought he was fucking dead. At the time, he was employed at the nearby Mare Island Naval Shipyard on San Francisco Bay. But by January of 1943, Elizabeth packed her shit and moved out after the two had a fight. I'm assuming it was over him telling everyone that he was a ghost. <laughs> Ooh, uh... Look at me. I need my car. <laughs> Maybe not a ghost. I don't know. Anyway, and it's retarded. So in, in actuality, he kicked her out for, quote, not doing anything with her life. Mm. Yeah. Apparently, he also wasn't too fond of the fact that she was dating a lot of different men. Oh. This was coming from a dude that faked his own death. So fuck him, too. Right. And you're going to hear this a lot, like, uh, as we go through this, that, uh, you know, the... Uh, she's she's kind of considered and and deemed to be promiscuous promiscuous yes you know what i mean but i mean back then of course how dare she she now it's like who gives a shit you know like i don't know it's just crazy and and there's actually some and we'll talk about it there is actually some thought that that may have actually lent to her death and why she was murdered especially the way she was right so and and You'll find out why I'm so infuriated with this entire thing. Like, I'm not even joking. Going through the research and, like, doing stuff or whatever, I was like, what the fuck? You know, oh, man, it's so... So Elizabeth then got a job and accepted a position at Camp Cook, now Vandenberg Space Force based. <laughs> Can we just 
just for a second. We have a space force. We're the first. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> anyway, that was in the uh, nearby Lampok area. Here, she br- briefly shared a residence with a U.S. Army Air Force sergeant who allegedly mistreated her. Dickbag. She moved to Santa Barbara, California after leaving Lompoc in the middle of 1943 when she was detained on September 23rd, 1943 in an absolutely deplorable crime. Yes. Listen, folks. She was arrested and thrown in the pokey for consuming alcohol at a neighborhood neighborhood tavern while she was underage. What the fuck? You're not allowed to do that, man. Elizabeth, come on. I mean, that's just downright despicable. Yeah. It's fucking so bad. <laughs> so dumb. So like you're 18. You know what I mean? You're, yeah. you're 18. Uh, whatever. This was obviously her gateway into the criminal underworld, right? Yeah. Of course it was. The juvenile authorities sent her back to Massachusetts. Still, she pulled a daddy faking her own death and went back to Florida instead, only making sporadic trips to see her relatives in the Boston area. Okay, she didn't actually fake her own death. I just thought it'd be cool to bring that back in there. Yeah. But she did go to Florida. Nice. Okay, so she went to Florida. So Elizabeth then met Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr., while he was in Florida, Gordon was a decorated 2nd Air Commando Group Army Air Force officer preparing for deployment to the Southeast Asian Theater of World War Deuce. Damn. Mm-hmm. And fuck that. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. Elizabeth later revealed to acquaintances that Gordon wrote to her while receiving medical attention for wounds sustained in an Indian plane crash and asked her to marry him. Oh. I mean, lucky guy. He survived the plane crash. Yeah. Right? Elizabeth. Hey, baby. You're the one for me. Baby. <laughs> Dear Miss, <laughs> I was in a plane crash and survived. Will you uh, get hitched with me? P.S. Have you seen your father's car? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so she agreed to the offer, of course, but less than a week before the end of the war, on August 10th of 1945, well, Gordon's luck didn't really hold out, and unfortunately, he died in a second crash. Oh, <laughs> you survived one. I think you should stay out of this. Guy. Right. Like, I'm done. Yes. See that? I'm finished. It's just like uh, uh, Spider-Man always says. Everyone always gets one. That's what Peter Griffin tells everyone. <laughs> so Elizabeth was a rolling stone, of course, then moving to Los Angeles in July of 1946 to meet Army Air Force Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling. She loved a man in uniform. And with the name Gordon. Hot damn. That's right. He was a friend from Florida serving at the uh, Naval Reserve Aviation Station in Long Beach. That's two Gordons back-to-back if you're keeping count. It's fucking weird, but that's just the beginning, okay? Just saying. Eliz- I mean, how many people named Gordon have you ever met, let alone dated two of them back-to-back? I understand one's like a middle name, one's a back name. Nope, I know. A back I, name, a last I, name. I know a guy named Gordon. D- really? He's awesome. He's a dick. And he's a chef. And he loves his daughters. Oh, stop it. You don't know him. <laughs> to my Gordon Ramsay, right? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Just making sure we're on the same page here. I'm like, is that right? Plus, plus, minus, subtract that. Yes. Can you do the math? So, of course, here's where it gets really messed up here. So, Elizabeth's uh, naked, dismembered body was discovered in an empty lot on the morning of January 15th, 1947, in the Limart uh, Park area on the west side of South Norton Avenue, halfway between Coliseum Street and and West 39th Street. This is out in Los Angeles, okay? Limert Park was largely undeveloped at the time, and uh, local residents, uh, resident Betty Bursinger thought that she had found an abandoned store mannequin 
when she first saw the body at around 10 a.m. while strolling with her daughter, who was only three. And as we all know, it's never a fucking mannequin. Nope. Ever. Mm. Never, 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 never. That's mm. why we have a shirt that says it's just another mannequin Monday. And I wear that shirt all the time. It's a pretty awesome shirt. You guys Typically can, on Mondays. You guys can get that shirt if you'd like. Oh, yeah, where? Uh, at the midnightdreampodcast.com. Oh, no kidding. There you go. So she, of course, hurried to a nearby residence and called the police as soon as she discovered that, but guess what? It wasn't a fucking mannequin and was, in fact, a person and a deceased one at that. Mm. All those, scary. So Elizabeth's body had been horribly damaged. It had been entirely uh, severed at the... this. Listen, if you're eating right now or whatever, uh, you might want to skip ahead a little bit. Mm. This gets a little graphic. Mm -hmm. And... Just saying. Hey, if you hung around the autopsy um, episode, I think you'll uh, I think it'll be okay. And if you did that, we can't be friends because <laughs> I didn't want to be here for that. That was rough. Anyway, okay. So um, she had been um, severed at the waist, okay, and blood had been drained from her entire body, turning her complexion a sickly white, which I guess would give credence to why she looked more like a mannequin, uh, yeah. right? Her death occurred either in the late afternoon or early morning of January 14th or 15th, according to medical examiners' estimates that she had been dead for around 10 hours before she was discovered. The murderer seemed to have washed the body, which is super weird. Mm -hmm. Her face was scarred uh, from her mouth's corners, um, um, yeah, from the corner of her mouth to her ears, giving the, you know, the, it's called a Glasgow smile. Yeah. That's where they take in... There's a certain, Chibs. Yes, that. Chibs has that. Chibs has that. The yeah. Joker from Dark Knight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she had numerous cuts uh, where large chunks of flesh had been uh, severed from her thighs and breasts. Her intestines had been carefully tucked beneath her buttocks, and the bottom half of her torso was set back a foot from the top. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, you literally, you, you cut her in half mm. and then positioned her. Yeah. All wow. With her legs spread apart, her elbows bent at right angles, and her hands placed above her head, the corpse had been, of course, positioned, like I just said. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a victim's body is posed to send a message to the police or the public. For example, you know, the guy we talked about back in the day here, Jack the Ripper, sometimes posed his victims' nude bodies with their legs spread apart to shock onlookers and the police in Victorian England. So this isn't something that they just do by happenstance. Right. This is something like this is my work. And, and it's almost like uh, they're proud. Right. So they will position it. And usually a lot of the time it is to mess with the cops. Look how smart I am. You can't get me because, you know, I did this. But to completely sever her in half. And wash her on top of that. Wash her. Mm -hmm. And then there it gets worse later. Yeah. Which, you know, we'll talk about it. So when the body was discovered, a mob of onlookers and reporters gathered Los Angeles, or gathered, of course, in Los Angeles Herald Express reporter Aggie Underwood was one of the first to arrive and took several pictures of the body and crime scene. Detectives discovered a heel print next to the body among tire prints and a cement bag with a uh, with bloody water nearby. Mm. Keep that in mind for later. She also had a oh boy. Yep. She had a lot of excrement in her stomach. Yeah, some super gross people out there assumed that she had been, uh, she was forced to consume the excrement uh, before being killed. Yeah. What the, f I'm telling, and this is the beginning mm -hmm. of the what the fuck. And like, uh, 
So her body underwent an examination on January 16th in 1947 by Los Angeles County Coroner Frederick Newbar. She was described in Newbar's autopsy report as being five foot five inches. Okay. Not too short, not too tall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 115 pounds or 52 kilograms for those smart people out there with brown hair, light blue eyes, and severely decaying teeth. Mm. I guess back then we didn't own toothbrushes. Eh? I don't know. Maybe. You know where they say that the toothbrush wasn't invented in... Wait, how's it go? <laughs> it, was, it was invented in West Virginia. Because if it was invented anywhere else, it'd be the teeth brush. Get it? Ah. <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, her neck, wrists, and ankles uh, bore ligature marks, and her right breast had a, quote, irregular laceration with superficial tissue loss. In addition, Newbar, the you know forensics examiner here, found superficial wounds on the lower side, uh, left side of the breast, the upper arm and the right forearm. So she was obviously bound at some point in time. Right. All right. And with superficial wounds, it sounds like she was either moved, mm-hmm. was beat, or when she was fighting back kind of thing. Right. You know what I mean? So, and back then, uh, we're also talking the, the, you know, the late, late, late or early, you know, long, long time ago before forensics was like big. You right. know what I mean? We're talking about some crazy stuff here that they had no idea about. All you could do is like, you know, walk in there and go, yeah, it looks like that's what it is. Right. You know, now a procedure that I didn't know and that I have had quite a hard time pronouncing known as a uh, hemocorporectomy. Yeah, good job. Yeah, I'm going to try that again. Do it again. Hemocorporectomy. Nice. Okay. Which was taught in the 1930s. Keep that in mind as well. Mm. Had fully divided the body in half. So apparently that is an actual technique where you can divide with precision, mm-hmm. mind you, mm-hmm. like you know, medical precision, you can cut somebody's body in half. Yeah, it was for the uh, the 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 whole treatment back in the day where they were trying to um, make centaurs. Please tell me you're kidding. <laughs> Are you kidding? Oh my god, I thought that was a thing. I sort of got. It. I was like, holy shit, did they do that? Nothing surprises me anymore. <laughs> nothing surprises oh me on your face. Dude. Yeah, nothing surprises me at all anymore. Holy shit, I was like, <laughs> for real. I want a centaur. <laughs> so now what this does is, is uh, it, it transects the lumbar spine between the second and third lumbar vertebrae and severs the gut at the who duodenum? Duodenum. That's what I said. Mm-hmm. The first part of your small intestine connecting the stomach, resulting in removing the lower half of the body. So that's what happened. She was literally cut in half. Yes. According to Newbar's report, the incision exhibited, quote, very little bruising along the incision line, indicating it had been made post-mortem. Even more fucked up. Yes, but... Uh-oh. Just saying, I would rather that happen after I died, instead of while I was... Oh, like from the receiving end of it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that sounds like that would suck. Yeah, a little bit. Greatly. Yeah. yeah. A little bit, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> From her navel to her pelvis, another, quote, gaping laceration was four and uh, one quarter inches long. The lacerations that stretched from the corners of the lips on either side of her face measured three inches on the right side and two and a half on the uh, on the left. The skull, her skull was not cracked, but there were signs of head trauma, including bleeding in the spot between the brain and skull on the right side, of, uh, right side and bruises on the front and right sides of her scalp. So it sounds like she was she was beat. Yeah. Beaten, excuse me. Yeah. The cause of death was judged to be shock from strikes to the head and face and hemorrhaging from the lacerations on her face. In other words, like she literally they they believe that she died from all the pain, basically. Right. 
like the pain from being beaten and you know, and hemorrhaging and everything else. She didn't die from like a you know obviously being the the hemo thing that happened earlier that we right. discussed. Yes. It wasn't that because that was post mortem. Right. So she she literally died from the the stress of all the pain. Right. It's fucking horrendous. Yeah. It just means that she was more than likely beat a lot. Yeah. So now this poor young lady's anal canal was dilated by one and three quarters inches, um, according to Newmar, Newbar, indicating that she may have been the victim of rape. Her body was sampled to detect the presence of sperm, but the tests actually all came back unsuccessful. So they, they, they didn't find anything, mm-hmm. but it, it, it appeared that yeah. that may have potentially happened. Now, as her fingerprints were already on file from that ridiculous 1943 arrest, you know, the one where she was caught drinking underage, see? Mm. The FBI identified her after receiving her prints through Sound Photo, a telephone transmitting camera often used for uh, news photography, which I didn't even know that was a thing. Neither did I. Especially back then. Right. That's pretty cool. Um, basically, the it's like the original CODIS, mm-hmm. you know, but just with pictures and stuff. Right. You know. So William Randolph Hearst, Los Angeles Examiner reporters, called Elizabeth's mother in Boston. This is fucked up, by the way. Yeah. They call her mother. These are reporters. They call her mother in Boston and when after they identified uh, Elizabeth's body and identified and informed her that her daughter had won a fucking beauty contest. Yeah. That's right. They They literally called and told her mother after they found out that she was dead that she had won a beauty contest. The reporters didn't tell her that her daughter had been brutally murdered until they sucked out every single bit of personal information they could from her. Fucking leeches. Yeah, can you only imagine that conversation? Oh, which part? Just, you know, the whole thing like, hey, I haven't heard from my daughter in a while. Oh my God, she won a beauty con. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me all the information about her. An hour later, we're talking. Oh yeah, she's dead. Bye. You know what I mean? Fucking horrible. Dude, I would have fucking drove out there myself and probably beat every single one. And it's not like mom's been through enough. Right. The dad faked his own fucking death. You know what I mean? Like, come on. However, if she went to Los Angeles um, to to assist with the police investigation, the newspaper promised to pay for her travel and lodging. So in other words, hey, by the way, if you come out here, we'll actually pay for it for you. Super nice. Except that was more bullshit considering the newspaper had kept her away from the authorities and other reporters to safeguard its quote-unquote scoop, you know. That's a scoop, see? Later, the case was sensationalized by the Examiner and another Hearst publication, the Los Angeles Herald Express. In one of its articles, the Examiner referred to the black-tailored suit Elizabeth was last seen wearing as having a, quote, a tight skirt and revealing blouse. Oh, no! What?! She showed a little too much neck. Oh, how dare she? She must be the devil and deserve being sliced in fucking half. She doesn't, and she didn't. Just saying. I mean, it's they, ridiculous. They, yeah. Yeah. Mm. She was, Elizabeth was given the moniker Black Dahlia by the media, and they called uh, her an adventuress who, quote, proud Hollywood Boulevard. Now, th- there is rumor, and, and it seems like a lot of people said that she was kind of like, she wanted to be an actress, mm-hmm. but she never really had the opportunity. Or maybe she just wasn't good at it. Either way, yeah, she just never had the opportunity to become an actress. Actress, however, she does have a um, a page on IMDb. Wait, really? Yeah. If you look it up right now, you will see Elizabeth Short, Black Dahlia. No listings under her name, but they actually have her up there. Wow. I thought it was weird. That is odd. You know what I mean? Maybe because she was an aspiring actress, and I mean it's a very world-renowned case. So yeah. may, may, maybe, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. 
So in addition, the murder was referred to as a, quote, sex fiend slaying in several newspaper sources, including one that appeared in the Los Angeles Times on January 17. And fuck every single one of those pieces of shit that wrote anything like that. You know, like what isn't what is what is the what is the term when you write something that disparages people? Is that libel? Yeah, I, I believe that's libel. There's libel, and then what's the other one? When you speak it, right? Uh, it's libel, and <laughs> yep, that's it. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll get it in a second, folks. I don't know. I'll, I'll remember it in a second. So, as the public became increasingly aware of Elizabeth's past, the media started to portray her as a sexual outlaw. According to one police report, the deceased knew at least 50 males at the time of her death, and 60 days before, at least 25 men had been spotted with her. In addition, she had a reputation for teasing men. So it sounds to me like she was a, okay, let's just say she was a very confident. Right. And if you look at her, she's a very pretty girl. She was a very, very pretty young lady. And maybe she just fucking owned it. Owned it, yeah, yeah. dude. Like, f- fuck every one of these just pretentious, it almost, judgmental dicks. It always, almost makes me And it, it's, di- it's dicks, too, oh, because they is. all have dicks. Yes. That's why. That's and why they're all dicks, because they have dicks, and because they think they have dicks that a woman shouldn't be able to do that. See? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, what were you saying? I was going to say, it almost seems that they're trying to uh, give credence to her murder is because of her promiscuity. It's exactly what I was saying in the beginning. Like that, it's like uh, almost like she deserved to die. Right. This is why she died, ladies. This is what happens if you dress and act this way. Right. You know what I mean? It's like the whole freaking Salem witch trials thing. If you talk out at all, I'm going to burn you at the stake. It's a fucking scare tactic. It's so stupid. Yeah. So due to her alleged pro- uh, propensity for wearing revealing black attire, they posthumously dubbed her Black Dahlia. This was in reference to the film The Blue Dahlia, which had just been released. In addition, Elizabeth was accused of being a prostitute by some of the uh, by some of these people, and accused of being a lesbian. How dare she? Who enjoyed making fun of males by others? Both of which had zero fucking evidence. It's all hearsay. It's just people talking shit mm-hmm. after she's fucking dead. And can't back any of that up. You know what I mean? Like you've got no. Uh, and this whole thing just it just annoys the shit out of me, and it gets way worse. So now the movie, Blue Dahlia, starring Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake, has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, wow. Yeah. And here's IMDb's synopsis of the movie, and I say, a quote, when Johnny comes home from the Navy, he finds his wife Helen kissing her substitute boyfriend, Eddie, the owner of the Blue Dahlia nightclub. Helen admits her drunkenness caused their son's death. He pulls a gun on her, but decides she's not worth it. Later, Helen is found dead, and Johnny is the prime suspect. So yeah, I didn't know there was a movie, and that's where it came from. To be honest, I didn't know where it came from. To be honest, but there was a movie called The Blue Dahlia, and yeah, what is a substitute boyfriend? <laughs> <laughs> it's the boyfriend that comes in while you're away. So that's the that's the side dude. So that's what that is the big thing. That's I guess. That, right. that is the side dude. <laughs> now, how that contributed to Elizabeth's nickname is beyond me. I don't really understand how they kind of pieced those two together. Maybe because she was in the movie, she was an adulteress. Maybe. Even at that, it's like you're disparaging her at every fucking chance you can get. Yeah. Her name, what you're saying about her, like, it's just, it's ridiculous. So despite how well known the case was, investigators had a fuck ton of trouble um, identifying the perpetrator. The media, those turds, did, however, obtain a few hints. About a week after the body was discovered on January 21st, 
the examiner got a call from someone claiming to be the killer who promised to deliver Elizabeth's possessions in the mail as evidence of him being her murderer. Hmm. Okay. Seems weird. Police get a lot of calls like that. Kind of odd. Like, yeah, I was the guy and I got a stuff. I don't know why he's talking like that. But <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. That's like a creepy guy, right? Is that, is that, is that, that's the creepy guy? I got your stuff. I got, I got, the, I got the stuff, see? <laughs> Whatever. Shut up. So now, it, it gets weird from this point, though, or weird, more weird, should I say. Her birth certificate, pictures, business cards, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen on the front were actually sent to the examiner shortly after on the 24th. Mm-hmm. Remember, the guy said, I've got her stuff. I'm going to send it. Okay. Weird. A letter that said, quote, Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles publications. Here is Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow was also attached. It was uh, assembled from newspaper and magazine, you know, letter clippings, you know, like how they used to do ransom notes. Like if you look in, you Mm -hmm. know, in movies and stuff, it's like got a big R and a little P. Did they actually do that shit? Apparently. Because, yes, this is exactly what it did. This just seems like a Hollywood. Well, I think what it is, it's, it's so you don't identify handwriting. Right. And and or typewriters because typewriters can still be tra- traced. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Because each typewriter. Hey, I don't know if you guys know this or not. Hey, a little dropping a little knowledge on you. You oh, know what I'm saying? Hey. You ready? This is Johnny's knowledge block. You ready for it? <laughs> hey. But typewriters are kind of like fingerprints. Really? Where like um, where each typeset mm-hmm. inside has little in 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 uh, like grooves or like discrepancies and things like that. Interesting. So they can actually identify from a typewriter. Um, who may have written a letter. Oh, shit. I yeah. have a 1942 typewriter at my house that I keep locked up. Was it this one? Is it the one he should have used? <laughs> <laughs> so now, it, you know, but anyway, even though they could, um, they, they could tell who she was by her fingerprints, right? Because remember, they went through and did the whole photo thing. Mm-hmm. No fingerprint, fingerprints were visible on any of the items that was sent in since they had all been cleaned with fucking gasoline. Okay. An incomplete fingerprint was discovered on the envelope, but it was ruined during shipping and was, wait for it, never examined. Hey, there you go, guys. Woo, yeah, that's for you, you bumbling fucking twats. Okay. Yeah, it gets worse. Yeah. Another scribbled letter arrived on January 26th. Quote, here it is, it said. Quote, 10 a.m. on January 29th. Submission date. I had fun with the police. Avenging the Black Dahlia. End quote. Mm-hmm. The letter mentioned a place at the scheduled time and location. The police were there waiting, but nobody ever showed up. Mm-hmm. Sounds like someone's fucking with them. A little bit. Then the supposed and most definitely the fucking murderer mailed the examiner a note fashioned uh, ag- again of magazine cut and paste letters that read, quote, have changed my mind. You wouldn't treat me fair- fairly. Dahlia's murder was acceptable. Which is fucking vague and like cryptic as shit you know like yeah so once more gasoline had been used to sanitize everything the person sent in making it impossible for the detectives to recover any fingerprints uh, from the evidence and and when when the fuck gasoline become sanitizer yeah like what does that work i mean hand sanitizer has ethanol alcohol in it doesn't it so it has alcohol which there's ethanol in gasoline, which alcohol, I guess, is a natural dissolvent, I guess. So maybe... See, folks, the entire time during this whole C word that I will never, ever say again on the show, mm-hmm. you could have just been wiping your hands with gasoline. <laughs> which is very bad. A lot of carcinogens. So, yeah. Not only that, but... <gasps> you know what I mean? You can go up like a Roman candle. 
So I'm glad you, <laughs> glad you guys did. But you could is what I was saying. Yeah, you, you can could. Also, you can also drink it and get uh, a, a buzz as well, too. Oh, boy. That was on A Thousand Ways to Die. Did they die? <laughs> yeah, that's why. This well, then don't do that. Then let's not do that. That's one Jesus. last good buzz, man. Yeah, no, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> we're giving you guys some really bad advice today. Don't do anything we ever say to do. We said we were in a bad mood. <laughs> yeah, but I don't want our listeners to die. Shit. No. So due to the brutality of her murder and the amount of public interest, the LAPD examined more than 150 probable suspects connected to the slaying at one point while 750 investigators were working on the case. That Damn. is a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And that, that, that time, that's nuts. That's pretty much the whole fucking police force. Yeah. You know? During the original inquiry, police heard more than 60 confessions. Shocker. But none were deemed reliable. More than 500 admissions have been made since then, yet no one has ever been put on trial. That's crazy. It makes sense to why they would have so many of those guys out there doing all that shit, because they were literally just made fools of like three or four times over now. Oh, from the supposed perpetrator, yeah. whoever's sending this stuff in. So it's more like, uh, well, we got to get everybody on this case. Now we got to show them that we're the man. Now we're looking like a bunch of dicks, see? <laughs> Johnson, what are you doing? Get off your ass and get out there and go look for that lady's killer. Is that, is that, is that better? Is that, that was better? good. That was good. Got to get the slow roll on the end yeah. of it. <laughs> <laughs> so many people believe that the Black Dahlia murder was a date gone wrong or that Elizabeth had encountered a stranger while out alone late at night. These allegations were continuously thrown out as the investigation grew cold. Now, they supposedly, she was supposed to go meet her sister. Mm. She kept telling everyone she was going to meet her sister. Right. And she went to a hotel, and apparently the sister never showed up, or whatever may have happened, and then she kind of just walked by herself. So, I'm going to throw a, a hypothesis out here you can but i've got my own already locked down ready to go by the end of this you <clears throat> motherfuckers gonna be like damn jonathan's good you uh you showed me a movie not too far back with a uh, nicholas cage in it the, the movie was called uh eight millimeter eight millimeter fantastic movie what if this was that and she was a result of not wanting to go through she was a quote-unquote actress oh oh or Ooh, you're you're saying that maybe she was doing like dirty movies, maybe? Yeah. That's why there's literally nothing of that. I mean, black market shit, you never know. Did they even have that accessibility to make those kinds of movies back then? I mean, it's been around. Or was it only for the glitz and glamour of the big city, see? You know, Hollywood guy, that's where it goes down. You know what I'm saying. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, if it were in a later time period, I would say, I would say, I would give some like credibility. 70s. But like this. It's kind of early. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But truthfully, I have no idea. I'm, it's actually a, a pretty good little hypothesis. Hypothesis. So many hypotheses. So of, of all this stuff, there's so many people and so many conjectures and whatnot, right? So the uh, the Black Dahlia murder case, um, with the case right here, has remained unsolved for more than 70 years. But in recent years, a few theories have surfaced. And hold your fucking asses, because this gets crazy. I can't hold my ass. Why can't you? My hands aren't big enough. Jesus. <laughs> For those of you out there who have not met us personally, you will know that the sayers, uh, well, we tend to have quite a juicy badonkadonk on us. <laughs> we are well endowed, and we do not have, well, no, wait, we do have our CDLs. Yes, CDL for that dump truck ass. <laughs> CDA then BCDA right it's, it's commercial driver's license oh for the dr- ah, now I got it yeah <laughs> don't ever say that again <laughs> Jesus 
All right. So now these the, these potential suspects, it gets really crazy where a lot of this is like, why in the fuck was this person never right. convicted? You know, so Steve Hodel, and that's, a you know, if you know this case, that's a very popular name. A, a veteran LAPD investigator was snooping through his father's stuff shortly after his dad passed away in 1999 when he came across two pictures of a woman who looked eh, what he thinks and believes is looks just like Elizabeth Short. Hmm. Okay. Hodel started looking into his deceased father's, you know, his life and his backstory and applying the knowledge he had as an, an investigator. You know, he, he's like, I'm going to find some shit. Hodel examined newspaper records, listened to witness testimonies about the crime, and even requested FBI data on the Black Dahlia murder under the Freedom of Information Act. Because there's a lot of info you can get out there. If it's public record, you, listener, can find just about anything as long as it's public record and it's not sealed. Right. Okay. Additionally, he had a handwriting expert compare samples of his father's writing to some of the notes the alleged murder allegedly gave to the media, which is odd, mm-hmm. considering that... I thought, and maybe there were more letters. I mean, but weren't they done by the whole cutout newspaper thing? Yeah, that's... Can you imagine if his dad wrote like that? <laughs> Is it a birthday card? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, no, oh, it's really weird. My dad writes just like that. Look at that big C. It's like cartoonish. <laughs> oh, my God. That's ridiculous. It's not funny, damn it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm good. Fine. <laughs> Though the analysis is uh, the, the the analysis findings were inconclusive, there was a good chance that his father's handwriting matched. So they, it it was close but inconclusive. It was close but no cigars. Correct. Yeah. yeah. See. So the Black Dahlia crime scene photographs revealed that Elizabeth's body had been sliced in a way consistent with a surgical operation involving cutting the body beneath the lumbar spine. Right. Right. We discussed that. Which the hippopotamus, the hippopotamus adectomy. Yes, yes. That thing. Hodel's father was a physician when this treatment was taught in medical school in the 1930s. <laughs> yeah, so Snoopy Hodel over here also looked through his father's records at UCLA, where his snooping ass uh, found a file of invoices for hiring contractors to work on the home he grew up in as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he found a receipt for a big old bag of concrete that was the same size and brand. Uh, as brand, excuse me, as the bag of concrete discovered close to Elizabeth's body, and it was dated a few days before the murder. Odd? No, not at all. I mean, odd. I mean, still circumstantial. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, but listen, who's working at his house? I, mm-hmm. She just happened to be there mm-hmm. and took a bag of concrete. Yeah, that's why he chased after because <laughs> it was too heavy. That's fine. You can take that concrete, Dame. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but that's all right. <laughs> Puffing on his cigar. Anyway. <laughs> so now many police personnel initially working on the case died before Hodel started his research. The son, right? Okay. Mm. So a lot of these people are actually passed away at this time. Right. However, he meticulously recalled the exchanges these police had with one another over the murder and investigation. Hodel eventually gathered and put all of his info into a best-selling uh, book, obviously, titled Black Dahlia Avenger, The True Story. It was published in 2003. Of course it was. Of course. Now, okay. I, I get I'm going to put out a book because maybe people aren't listening. Yeah. Like, I have I have proof here that my father did this, mm-hmm. but 
you know, people aren't listening. I'm going to put out a book and maybe it'll raise some awareness. Oh, yeah. Kind of like the new book that just came out uh, a couple of days ago. Which is? Uh, the one from Marco Polo. You don't know anything about that? Oh, shit. Marco Polo. Yeah, it's the uh, <coughs> Hunter Biden laptop case. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's dropped. Oh, yeah. There's a whole ass book on it now. I did also hear names are coming up soon, too, or, from the, uh, the Gislaine. Gislaine. Yeah. I heard that's supposed to be, which is so funny. Hey, another derail. But everyone's saying that everything we're seeing, like with the, the quote unquote UFOs in the sky, yeah. that that's all supposed to be taking away from that coming out. It's the government's own way of derailing us. Yeah. Like, ah, yeah. like over in Ohio here. Yeah. yeah. By the way, we are safe for you, uh, you, 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 you beautiful passengers out there that may be wondering how close we are because we are in Ohio to, to Palestine, mm-hmm. um, um, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And it's it's horrible, and I feel for the people that live there. I really do. It sucks, and it's just a, yeah, it's garbage. It sucks. But yeah, and the aftermath effects are ridiculous. Like I've been seeing pictures of people in Canada that are having issues, like environmentally. Yeah. Like New York City is having like a bunch of birds just randomly drop dead in the middle of the rain because of all the the stuff that's in the water itself coming through. So it's definitely not a uh, a good time. It's not good. It's no. definitely not good. But we are are first of all we're west of it, and yeah. we actually don't get our water from there. We get our water from the lake, right? Where basically south of us they get their water from the which river feeds into the mississippi river which feeds pretty much a lot of the country yeah so it sucks so if anyone out there is if you guys know about that and you're hearing about it and if you're in a different country you just look it up palestine ohio uh train derailment and it's not good no anyway <laughs> okay <clears throat> so now take a big ass swig of that tasty beverage mm. because uh well when verifying the book's accuracy Los Angeles Times columnist Steve uh, Lopez obtained the case's official police files and found some very crucial information. The LAPD identified six key suspects shortly after the crime. And uh, his daddy, George Hodel, yeah, he was one of them. I hope so. No, for sure. He was on their fucking list. So now let's talk a little bit about George Hodel. This is his daddy. After the success of his medical practice and becoming head of the county social hygiene bureau... Which is awesome, I guess. <laughs> Brush your teeth, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Hodel was moving in uh, affluent Los Angeles society by the 1940s. He was enamored uh, with the darker side of surrealism and the decadence surrounding that art scene, befriending photographer Man Ray, film director John Houston, and associates. Kind of l- lends to what you're kind of saying, dude. Ooh. With Ray and some surrealists, he shared an interest in sadomasochism. Hmm. With the young men of the Hollywood scene, he shared a fondness for partying, drinking, and womanizing. Hodel was effectively a polygamist in late uh, the late 1940s, around the time of the deaths of Spalding and Elizabeth Short. Spalding is, by the way, and we'll talk a little bit more, it's another woman that died. Oh. Hodel was living with Derrero and their three children, his first legal wife, Dorothy Anthony, and their daughter, Tamar, and at times his original common-law wife, Amelia, mother of Hodel's eldest child, by that time an adult. He was also prone to taking temporary lovers. A witness later suggested such a relationship between Hodel and Elizabeth Short existed. Okay, I'm... I'm sorry, but like, you're just now finding a witness that may or may not have seen after... But it's hearsay. Right. But, but that's it, though. That, that's it. And, okay, I'm going to... We're, we're going to go into this, like, further. Okay. But I'm just going to tell you right now that, to me, the cops covered it up. Mm-hmm. 
Um, this guy was probably part of like you know higher society. He was a doctor and everything else. Right. And they didn't want him getting into it and so they just didn't follow up on stuff because then what you do is you just say well everything's hearsay it's hearsay it's here well who's it coming from right this woman over here will look at her, her record you know what i mean we don't want to put her on trial we don't want to put her up on a on, on and and testify against anything because what's it going to do for us right. it's going to make us look bad kind of like the whole thing that's going on with joe biden right now everything yeah did you hear about that oh boy he uh, apparently he's actually assaulted some female in 99 joe biden did <laughs> like the president <laughs> Did he grab her by the pussy? <laughs> no. No, he sniffed her hair. Oh. <laughs> well, he sniffs a lot of hair. And, but listen, we're not political no, at all. We, we no. stay away from that. If it's news, then it's news. Yes. I'm not saying one or the other, but I do. it would be funny if, because, you know, everyone was so upset with, with Trump about with that. With Trump, like, yeah. grabbing her by the... And that's not cool. It's no, not okay. No, it's not at all. Not at all okay. One was a euphemism. The other one actually happened, supposedly, allegedly. Mm. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. So back to this piece of shit. In late 1949, Hodel's teenage daughter, Tamar, accused him of <clears throat> incestuous sexual abuse and impregnating her. Oh. He was acquitted after a widely publicized trial. Two witnesses to the alleged abuse testified at the trial. A third recanted her earlier testimony and refused to come forward, with one theory being that Hodel threatened her into silence. Tamar's testimony was perceived as contradictory and attention seeking you have to remember the time we're in here okay Odell came to police attention as a suspect in the elizabeth short murder in 1949 after the sexual abuse trial of course he's now on their radar right right known or suspected um uh, sex criminals in the area were being investigated for elizabeth's case like everybody if you had anything on your record they were pulling you out right right which they should yeah even though this is way far and beyond that you know what I mean? Like your typical like predator mm-hmm. is not going to literally slice someone in fucking half and pose them, pose them, clean them up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's make them eat their own shit. Yeah. I forgot yeah. about that part. Yeah. Uh, it, there's another part that gets worse here that I found. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it had come out in the trial that Tamar had allegedly claimed her father was the Dahlia killer. The daughter who accused him of this and getting impregnated by him who was pretty much dismayed is saying yes he's the dude he <laughs> hodel's medical degree also aroused suspicion given the hypothesis that whoever bisected elizabeth's body had some degree of surgical skill yeah at least eight witnesses claimed firsthand uh, firsthand knowledge of 19 of a 1946 relationship between Elizabeth and Hodel, then back in Los Angeles from China. So he just got back and he was hanging out with her. Okay, eight people have said this. The full details of the investigation came to light only in 2003 when a quote George Hodel Black Dahlia file was discovered in archives at the Los Angeles County District Attorney's office. They have a file on this. Yes, they do. The file revealed that 1950, Hodel, daddy dick shit, was a suspect of the Dahlia murder. What the fuck? In the fucking DA's file. Uh, The motherfucker was a such a significant suspect that his uh, Hollywood residence was electronically bugged by an 18-man uh, DA LAPD task force between February 15th and March 27th of 1950. 
the DA tapes recorded him saying, and I fucking quote, supposing I didn't kill the Black Dahlia, or supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk my uh, they can't talk my secretary anymore because she's dead. Talk to my secretary. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. Remember the woman I mentioned earlier? She died suspiciously. His secretary. Okay. Yeah. Hodel was also interviewed as a suspect in the nearby June 1949 murder of Louise uh, Louis Springer, the Green Twig murder. However, evidence to support the uh, accusation was not publicly available until July of 2018. In October of 1949, Hodel's name was mentioned in a formal written report to the grand jury as one of five prime suspects in Elizabeth uh, in Short's murder. Still, none of the named suspects were submitted to the grand jury for consideration for indictment as the investigation was still going. How? How? <laughs> Cover up. Like, I don't, I don't, it's like the same thing that's been going on for like a long time, though. When you have these people that are in, that are renowned, they just get shit dismissed because it looks bad on the other people who stood up for them in their corner. So now instead of getting one person who gets thrown in jail, now you're putting away 30 heads of whatever getting thrown away in jail as well, too. For fucking up? For fucking up. Yeah, for not doing their so fucking job. that's why job. they just seal the shit, kind of like what's going on recently, mm-hmm. they just seal the shit and put it away. Yep. So now, going even further here, in July of 2018, Sandy Nichols of Indianapolis, Indiana, right here in the U.S., while going through her recently deceased mother's personal effects, discovered a, quote, dying declaration letter written by her grandfather, W. Glenn Martin, dated October 26th of 1949. Okay? Hopefully you guys are following me on this. Gotcha. Lady goes in, she finds something, and it's a, it's a letter, right? Mm-hmm. The handwritten envelope read, quote, in case of Margaret Ellen's or Glenna Jean's death, and was initialed WGM. Well, that would be W. Glenn Martin. That would make sense. Okay. The letter was written out of fear that one or both of his teenage daughters might be killed. Hmm. Mm. The three-page letter identified W. Glenn Martin as a paid LAPD police uh, informant working for a, quote, Sergeant McCauley. uh, That'd be Sergeant McCauley, LAPD Internal Affairs Division. Hmm. He described his activities as working undercover for LAPD detectives to help them identify and arrest corrupt police officers. In his words, quote, um, it was to try and see if other officers could be in oh, that word. I've never seen that word before. Inveigled? Inveiled? I'm going to say it's inveiled. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, it was to try and see if other officers could be inveiled into crime. The Martin letter reproduced in full in the chapter afterward in Black Dahlia Avenger 3. Went on, that's another book. Yeah, there's so many fucking books. Went on to name G.H. on 17 separate occasions, identifying him as a personal acquaintance of Martin's as well as of Macaulay's, the sergeant. And named him as the killer of both Short and of a second lone woman, Louise Springer, the green twig murder victim. Mm. Now, G.H., that would be who? George fucking Hodel. Right? (laughs) Or the Grinch who? I don't think that's it. No? He didn't no. steal Christmas? No. Oh. He, no, he did. Oh. But he brought it back. It's fine. Okay. So, Martin's letter claimed that both the uh, that he and G.H. personally knew Springer and that he believed G.H. had also killed her. LAPD at the time was actively investigating the Springer and Black Dahlia murders and had publicly identified them as, uh, quote, probably connected. 
Hmm. I didn't know this part. I had no idea. No, this is all new to me. That this may have actually been connected to, like there, another murder may have been connected to the Dahlia. Hmm. Uh, Springer was garroted on June 13th of 1949, just two blocks from where Short's body was found in 1947. And if you don't know what a garrote is, that's when, that's when you... That's croaks. No. Garrote. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Fucking shit. <laughs> when you have like a uh, like a stick in this hand a stick in that hand and then you wrap each end with like a long piece of material and then you put it around someone's neck and then you cross your arms and you twist ah that is a garrote did not know that or a garrote some people say but it's garrote i take that and what I said. that's yeah it's used for you know it's been used for a while gotcha people have been doing that for quite a while and now you know yep Included in the letter was the fact that LAPD, after being informed that GH knew victim Springer, brought GH in to be, quote, grilled about the Springer murder. The Martin letter clarified that law enforcement officers knew and protected GH and that they, quote, let him go. Martin's instructions were that his letter would be open only in case of harm to either of his daughters. Now, luckily, no harm came to either of them. So the letter remained unreported and in the family's possession for 70 years until discovered and read by Martin's granddaughter. So why do you think he was holding on to that? In fear. Mm-hmm. He, he was in fear. He knew something. Why else do you hold on to something and say, just in case? Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, like the, 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 this guy... Dude, this fucking George Harold or Hodell. Hodell, sorry. He did it. I'm uh, sorry. Yeah. This motherfucker did it. Mm-hmm. He fucking did it. And the Absolutely. fact that they had they had his home fucking bugged and had him legit going, man, maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. Now now just to give you guys some context here, we are gonna go through and we're gonna talk about some other potential suspects. Okay. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's almost like why? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> why? <laughs> so despite this uh surprising development, the Black Dahlia case hasn't been officially solved oh, no. which appears to confirm the theory that george hodell killed elizabeth most likely his assistant remember i mentioned that earlier and potentially at least a third that we quote know about that would be the springer lady yes, the green twig yes but of course this hasn't prevented steve hodell from looking into his father either so steve is obviously the one who brought this light listen good for him though doing this yeah you know what i mean like i mean but, but that's my point though with like releasing the books, I mm-hmm. almost feel like, okay, you're kind of vindicated in doing it. Obviously you're probably gonna make some money off of it, which I'm not that that makes my fucking butt itch a little bit. Yeah. But but if you're if you're trying to bring light to this because nobody's paying attention, no one's listening to you, like listen, I've got this shit right here. Right. You know? Like what 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 else do you do? Right. You take it to the media, the media is gonna make some kind of like, you know, little fifteen second snippet on the fucking news one day and that's it. Or they might not. Or an amazing podcast might just be talking about it a few years later. Hey, hey now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so he claims to have discovered information about numerous um, like other homicides that may be connected to his father, casting him not only as the Black Dahlia murderer, but also as a fucking psychotic serial killer. And he lived in the house with him for like yeah, a while. I could see that sucking. Yeah, a little bit. Even law enforcement agencies have expressed interest in hodell's studies okay in 2004 well obviously they have a fucking file on him 
But in 2004, Stephen R. K., the chief deputy, uh, deputy for the district attorney's office in Los Angeles County, claimed that if George Hodel were still alive, there would be enough evidence to indict him for the murder of Elizabeth Short. Right? Cool. Yeah. Perfect. If he were still alive. Can, can we, can we, is there a way, and I don't know, and mm-hmm. I'm just kind of putting this out there. Is there a way to like connect things to close a case posthumously? I mean, if you dig them out, put them on trial, and then just have some puppeteer just move his job, like, I did it. Maybe. I didn't, I didn't mean like that. I mean, oh, <laughs> I was being like serious, but that's hilarious. And I really want that to happen now. Just bring like serial killers back to life. Like, did you do it? His jaw just, I sure did. Come on, come on. I'm just saying, like, if you yeah, know, you would think so. If you know, if the chief deputy for the, the, the DA's office in LA is like, oh, if he were alive, yeah. we would indict him. It's like the fucking uh, Jack the Ripper shit when we were thinking about that Maurice guy or whatever. Like, that could be linked to him if it came out saying, yeah, we actually found DNA evidence. This is the guy that actually fucking did it. All right, cool. Case closed. You should still be able to. Is that what they need? That's probably, they need like concrete, like. Yeah. Direct evidence Probably. instead of all the circumstantial stuff. Yeah. But man, listen, I just listened to a podcast uh, series this past week and um, there was a dude that got put away for the rest of his life on nothing but circumstantial evidence. Do I think the guy did it? I don't know. Literally, dude, I'm like walking away from this going, I don't know. And it's a long, like 40 year old case about Damn. a 12 year old girl that was murdered. Ooh. It's so sad. It's so sad. But I was listening to it and then it, they got him on all this circumstantial stuff. And then they finally, they, they had to go, uh, he was a, not acquitted, but it was a mistrial, I think once or twice. And then they went back and they finally got him the third time, mm. which sucks. That they can do that. That sucks to me. I, I hate that you can have a mistrial. And then, so double jeopardy only counts if you get acquitted. All right. It doesn't count if there's a mistrial. Right. So if the, you go in and you're up for first degree murder mm-hmm. and you get you know acquitted, they can't charge you for that again. Even if they found out the next day that you actually did it, right. you cannot be charged with that. Mm-hmm. Right? It's double jeopardy. That's right. But however, if there's a mistrial, mm-hmm. they can keep fucking they keep you in jail and keep charging you and going for another trial each time. So is that like a good tactic? for people who might get acquitted that they would just as soon as they get that feeling like oh they're gonna acquit him just fuck up the trial so they can do it again no you know what i think it is i think it's more of a they're using the system to their advantage because they know he's not going to get acquitted but they also they want that conviction so bad Mm. that they they keep utilizing that same thing it's like we're going to keep we're going to keep you in jail and we're going to put you up on another trial and we're going to have another trial and another jury and another trial and another jury and another trial until we get you. Right. Which to me seems fucked up. You know what I mean? Like there should be like a, I don't know, a two strikes and I go home thing. Right. <laughs> you know for, what I mean? for the same exact, uh, for the same exact uh, uh, thing that you, yeah, yeah, I get you. And again, I'm not saying that the guy, the guy was a creep in this whole thing that I'm talking about. In this, okay. uh, it's a legit case. He was a creep. He was a weirdo. And, you know, I feel like he's a bit off. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, psychologically, Mm -hmm. you know, um, do I think he did it? I don't, I really don't. I, I, dude, it's weird. And this whole thing was like, he did it. He did it. He did it the whole time. And I'm listening to it going, I don't fucking think he did. And everything you have is based on circumstantial evidence. Like every single bit of it. Like he, he was like, so basically this little girl gets murdered in this town Mm -hmm. and 12 years old, horrible. And this guy is like sticking his nose in it constantly. 
Uh, and typically they say that if somebody's doing that and they're putting themselves in the investigation, that yeah, you got to look at this guy. Okay. But he, he's got, he's a little off. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking this guy, this horrible thing happens in his town and he's infatuated with it because he's never seen or heard anything about it. And he's a little bit on the slower side of the mental scale here. Right. So he's, He's enamored with it. Yeah, he's like hyper fixated on it. Super. Yeah. For for forty fucking years he was. Right. Which and and but if 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 you've if you have a tinge of mental um defect, mm-hmm. that could be huge to you. Right. Especially if you knew her. Right. So all of a sudden you're gonna become fixated on it. And they turned it out or turned it around and made it like his fixation was that he did it. You know? And, and, and there was no, no fucking direct evidence, like, at all. Yeah, that's fucked up. At all. And they so, convicted the fucking guy. So they're going to convict the guy while the actual killer is probably running around free. Who knows? You know what I mean? But they they were like a dog with a bone, man. You yeah, know what I mean? They, they, they just wouldn't let it go, and they, they got what they wanted. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't like that you can have, like, repeated mistrials, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we got the one we wanted. We finally found the jury that's going to convict. You know? If there was a mistrial, that means that there was a doubt. If there's a doubt, then we need to have like a better grasp on how to handle that. Yeah. You know, don't keep trying, trying these people over and over again because they're, you know, multiple mistrials. You, you can't, you, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm going on a tangent here. No, I'm sorry. No. I just listened to that. I finished it up today and I'm like baffled that I don't think the guy did it. I really don't. I don't think he did. And this this dude's gonna spend the rest of his fucking life in jail. That sucks. Like he's in his sixties, maybe seventies now, so he's not getting out. You know no. what I mean? And I'm not saying the guy's innocent. The guy he sounds like he, he's kind of a dirtbag. Yeah. But just because you're a dirtbag doesn't mean you deserve to spend the rest of your life in prison over something you did not do. Right. You know right. that's the key. If you didn't do it, you shouldn't be in fucking prison. Right. Period. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> Speaking of didn't do it, but we know he did. <laughs> This fucking George Hodel couldn't suck a fart out of my butt. Anyway, guess what? <laughs> huh? The case was actually solved in 2017. Did you know that? I did not. Yeah, because it wasn't. Uh, um, <laughs> it's uh, just according to British author, uh, and dear God, please help me with this name, P-I-U. Is it P-U? Is it P-U? P-U. P.U. Eatwell, who revealed her discoveries in the book Black Dahlia, Red Rose, The Crime, Corruption, and Cover-Up of America's Greatest Unsolved Murder. Again, it's too long of a damn title. Yep. All right. So, this is, and I believe P.I.U. is a female. Okay. Okay. Leslie Dillon, a man who uh, police briefly thought was the main suspect, but ultimately let go, was the actual offender, according to her. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. She claims there was much more um, to the case than just the murderer, though. Okay. And she has a lot of things that I'm like, okay. Okay. Not as much as Hodel. Okay. Because Hodel's my guy. That's my guy. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. That's mm-hmm. my guy. Fuck him. He did it. I know. For, he. Not, I can't say I know for a fact. I almost, <laughs> I almost was like, I know for a fact. That's called libel. Ha <laughs> ha. No. I do, do not know for a fact, but I, my, my bones tell me. They tingle? That, that, oh, yeah. Sp- the spidey sense is tingling, for sure. He's he's the murderer. So Eatwell claims that Mark Hansen... Remember that name at all? Yeah, that sounds awfully familiar. Wasn't yeah. that a detective? No, that was actually the name of the um, diary that was sent in from the guy that claimed to have murdered her. Uh, remember, there's that name in there? Yeah. Okay. 
Well, he was a local nightclub and movie theater owner who collaborated with Dylan, ordered Dylan a bellhop, okay, to kill Elizabeth. So basically, Mark Hansen, he's the higher guy. He tells Dylan, I want you to go kill her. Hmm. Okay. Hansen, the owner of the address book mailed to the examiner, yeah, that one, was another suspect who had ultimately been cleared. Later, he asserted that uh, he had given Elizabeth the, the address book as a gift. Oh, she liked it. I just wanted to give it to her. Yeah. Okay. She was one of the last people to speak with Hansen before her death in a phone call on January 8th. Elizabeth apparently spent a couple of nights with Hansen, and Eatwell claims that Hansen hit on Elizabeth despite her refusals because he was just smitten with her. He was just enamored with her. Gotcha. He allegedly contacted Leslie Dillon to, quote-unquote, take care of her. Apparently, Hanson was aware of Dylan's murderous propensities, but was unaware of how fucking crazy he really was. Okay. So, in other words, the guy works for me. This broad keeps, you know, putting me off here, not giving me the time of day. I want to kill her. You, you work for me. Go kill her. Still not on the hotel train there. You know what I mean? That doesn't yeah. seem, that seems like it's the caboose yeah. of the whole suspect train right now. Anyway. So, Leslie Dillon had previously worked, and this is the, the the guy he asked to kill, that Hanson asked to kill. He um, he had actually worked as a mortician's assistant where he might have picked up the skill of bleeding a body dry and how to surgically slice someone in half. I'm going to say no on that. Yeah, mortician's assistants. How many times do morticians slice bodies in half? Oh, I mean, never. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean... Vertically? No, not even. Yeah, not no. no. There, there's not a whole lot of that happening. We watched autopsies, so we we actually have a, a pretty good inside uh, scoop on that. Yeah, that's not how that happens. No pun that's intended. Not, yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. So now, allegedly, police files show Eatwell that uh, that Dylan was aware of information regarding the crime that had not been made public. Okay. Hmm. Okay. For example, Elizabeth had a tattoo of a rose on her thigh that had been. And I'm so sorry about this, folks, especially to you lady listeners out there. Uh, that tattoo of the rose had been cut off and stuffed inside her vagina, which was one particular detail that wasn't public, but yet this guy supposedly knew. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's fucked. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, Dylan claimed to be an aspiring crime writer and informed the authorities that he was working on a book on the Dahlia case. However, this book was never completed. Shocker. What, but, but now, in this day and age, we really have to look at everybody with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. If people were to grab my computer, if I was a suspect of a fucking murder or something like that, oh, yeah, you'd be- they would look in my my search history and everything that's on my computer, and they'd be like, fuck yeah, he did it. Yep. You know, because if you are into that, and you're listening right now, so you're probably into that, mm-hmm. You you have to look at all those things with a grain of salt. Right. You know what I mean? So Dylan was never accused of the crime despite the overwhelming amount of evidence that pointed to him. Instead, Eatwell asserts that Mark Hansen's connections to a few LAPD officers led to his parole. So it goes back to the fucking cops. It almost kind of makes me think that maybe there was a connection between Hodel and Dylan and this other guy. And Hansen? Yeah, maybe. Well... Eatwell feels the department was uh, corrupt, but she also thinks Hanson had a significant role by taking advantage of his connections to certain officers. Now, remember, we already know that freaking Hodel earlier, mm-hmm. he's got hookups with officers. You know what I mean? 
their friends. But see, that's that's the thing that kind of brings me back to this whole 8mm thing where maybe they had this whole darker side of the uh, law where they kind of dealt with different people and they were both in that together and they weren't actively hanging like out with each other. the dark un- underbelly? Yeah. Well, a crime scene discovered at a nearby motel was another finding that supported Eatwell's theory, and this is super gross. Eatwell found a report by Henry Hoffman, owner of the Astor Motel, where Dylan allegedly stayed while conducting her study. Okay? So she finds out that this guy, Dylan, who was hired by Hanson to kill Elizabeth Short, that he was staying at this hotel. The University of Southern uh, California's campus was close to the modest 10-cabin Astor Motel. And as we know, she was drained of her blood. Mm-hmm. Okay. He discovered the chamber, uh, the, the the guy here that she talked to here, um, Henry Hoffman, yeah, the owner. Mm-hmm. He discovered the chamber, quote, soaked in blood and fecal matter. Okay. When he opened the door to one of his cabins on January 15th of 1947. He found a bundle of women's clothing wrapped in bloodstained brown paper in another cabin, which had been left by someone. Okay. Okay. Now, okay, let's piece this together real quick. Mm -hmm. You got Dylan. Mm -hmm. Dylan works for Hanson. Right. Hanson says, I want you to kill her because she won't give you the time of day. Right. Right. Which is super fucked up, and I don't think even remotely true Mm -mm. at all. It seems you're taking it way too far. Unless you're a fucking, you know, insane narcissist. But at that point, why why not do it yourself? Right. You know what I mean? If you're that mentally unstable that if if a woman can't, you know, if a woman doesn't want to be with you and you're that mad, you want her dead. You're that detrimental. Yeah. Shut down. Yeah. So this guy says, well, this guy was living at this hotel or staying at the hotel or whatever. And then we found all of this blood and fecal matter and whatnot. But he never reported any of it. Okay. Right. 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 So Hoffman merely cleaned up the crime scene instead of reporting it. He didn't want to risk getting into another in- incident with the police after being detained four days previously for hitting his wife. Oh, the guy's a dickhead, too. He's a piece of shit. Fuck him as well. So we, we don't know if this is even true. Right. Again, it's hearsay. Yeah. Circumstantial. You cannot use that. Now, if you had taken a picture of it... Mm-hmm. Or called the police and said, hey, y'all motherfuckers need to get down here. This There's poop and blood everywhere. And okay. There's a bag of bloodied women's yes. clothes. And I did not do this. My wife is alive. She's at home. Yes. She oh. got a black eye. I only but hit I- her once. <laughs> oh, man. It's fucked up. Don't hit your... Don't fucking Please hit. don't do that. Don't hit anyone. Just, just stop it. So Eatwell thinks Elizabeth's murder occurred in the motel. Obviously. Although unconfirmed, eyewitness accounts suggest that a short-looking woman was seen at the motel just before the murder. Remember, Elizabeth was only 5'5", so not exactly tall. Eatwell's allegations have not been confirmed because many uh, official LAPD documents are kept locked up. And everyone connected to the original Black Dahlia murder case is pretty much gone by this time. Right. Eatwell, though, is still confident in her conclusions and genuinely feels that she is... Uh, that she has solved the grisly and super fucked up case of the Black Dahlia murder. I'm going to say I don't think so. Mm-mm. Yeah, I, I don't think so at all. Like, that's not mine. But th- now there are a few more suspects, though. Shall we go through them? Sure. Some quick hitters, if we will. So obviously, while George Hodel, Mark Hansen, Leslie Dillon, and there's been a couple of others, are compelling candidates for the Black Dahlia killer, one author claims that there's another duo who may have killed the young actress. 
Donald H. Wolf wrote in his 2006 book, The Mob, The Mogul, and The Murder, or excuse me, and The Murder That Transfixed Los Angeles. God, these fucking titles. Yeah, I don't understand. The Mob, The Mogul, and The Murder That Transfixed Los Angeles. I don't even like the word transfixed. No, you should have used juxtaposed instead. <laughs> See, I can at least say that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that Elizabeth Short was murdered by the gangster Bugsy Siegel. <laughs> what? Yeah. At the request of newspaper publisher Norman Chandler. What so with these names? Somebody else just wants her dead. I don't know. Why? As Wolf tells it, Chandler, the publisher of the Los Angeles Times, had a brief sexual relationship with Elizabeth Short. And when the aspiring actress got pregnant... Oh... He enlisted Siegel to kill her. Like Steve Odell, however, uh, Wolf, uh, Wolf, <laughs> fucking Wolf, Wolf came up with his theory based more on a hunch than hard evidence because there is none. As he explained to the Guardian, Wolf grew up knowing a man named Uncle Vern who worked for the gangster. And Vern, the gangster Bugsy, and Vern seems to have suggested over the years that Siegel could have had something to do with the infamous Black Dahlia murder. Okay, so <clears throat> let me just ask this real quick. Mm-hmm. In the report yeah. of Elizabeth Short being separated in twine. Correct. Was her lady parts ripped out? Were they may or may not have had a no. baby? No. There was nothing even remote. There's never, in any of the reports I read, I didn't see anything that was, like she was pregnant or had anything like that. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because that would be the only thing that would make this make sense to me. So right. Far. So far. Well, not only that, this guy's like Uncle Vern says he worked for Bugsy, and that Bugsy, shut the fuck up, you and Uncle Vern. <laughs> but Wolf says that it's uh, Siegel's implausibility that makes him such a good Black Dahlia suspect. Siegel and Chandler were so powerful, he said that the LAPD helped them to cover up the murder. It all goes back to the LAPD. You notice every single one of these is like the LAPD fucked up, and I kind of feel bad for them. But they, if if you did. Then fuck you. The LAPD, unfortunately, have been a running joke since the 40s, apparently. Yeah, it's been bad. Yeah. Quote, I found that if you understand the times and you understand the players, it's it was very plausible. That's Wolf telling The Guardian. Quote, the public thought that the LAPD gangster squad's job was to arrest the criminals in Los Angeles. But the real function was to protect the criminals who were making the payoffs and arrest those who weren't. Hmm. That is so allegory and just, you know what I mean? Like, do not believe that one at all. No. All right. Now, this one's pretty funny. <laughs> oh, God. Dare I say that? Um, so, like Steve Odell, Janice Nolston also thinks that the Black Dahlia killer was someone close to her. Her own father. Another one. Yeah. Okay, I'm listening. George Knowlton. Janice detailed her theory in the 1995 book, Daddy Was the Black Dahlia Murder, or Black Dahlia Killer. At least that's a good title. It should have been Daddy Wasn't There, but anyways. <laughs> Daddy Wasn't There. The jeans were underwear. <laughs> As Janice wrote in her book, she started to remember things she believed she'd suppressed in, late in the late 1980s. Her father was long dead, but Janice began to recall him molesting her and a disturbing memory of him murdering a young woman she knew as Aunt Betty. Janice claimed that she saw her father beat Elizabeth Short to death with a claw hammer at their family home in Westminster, California, when she was just 10 years old. What's more, she wrote that George forced her to accompany him as he disposed of the Black Dahlia's body. Okay, so let's let's just let's just dissect. Oh God, did I say that? Let, mm -hmm, sorry. <laughs> let's go through this one. So, she was beaten to death with a claw hammer. Okay. 
her skull wasn't cracked. Her skull was not cracked. She had hemorrhaging, so she, she did. was definitely she hit she, in the head. She's de- more of a blunt object kind of thing. Not a claw hammer. No, not like direct whatever, because no no fractures in or on the skull at all. She had like uh, hemorrhaging inside the, the, right. the layer of the skull in the brain. Right. Okay. A. B. She was sliced in fucking half. With a claw hammer? Nope. Uh, yep. See, yeah, calling that one bullshit. Yeah. Mm, nope. Sorry there, lady. And you just happened to see your dad do this while you were 10 years old. And just now come out with it. <sighs> she goes on to say, quote, she believed it, but it wasn't reality. This is Jolene Emerson told the Los Angeles Times, quote, I know because I lived with her father for 16 years. He could be meaner and ornerier God, than heck, but he wasn't a killer. So this guy's like, or this person's like, no, she's full of shit. Mm-hmm. Though the Los Angeles police are aware of Janice's claims, they came to the same conclusion. Quote, the things that she is saying are not consistent with the facts of the case. That is John P. St. John, an LAPD homicide detective who uh, said that to the L.A. Times in 1991. Yeah. Sorry, lady. You're, you're, you're wrong. Oh, but I've seen it, though. Like, how, ma- how many daddy issues do you have to have? And listen, if, if he did molest his fucking daughter, that's horrible. Yeah. And he should be put in fucking jail for that. You know what I mean? Well, he's dead already, but yeah. you know, that's fucked up. But I feel like maybe she's just like, I don't know, you're, you got repressed shit going on. I, I she had a bad dream. Yeah. Now, there was Robert Red Manley, okay, who was supposedly the last person to actually see Elizabeth Short alive, okay, another potential suspect here. Shortly after Elizabeth's body was discovered on uh, January 15th of 1947, police tracked down the last person believed to have seen her alive, a married, ooh, mm-hmm. redheaded, ooh, <laughs> can't be that, damn gingers, pipe clamp salesman named Robert Red Manley. A pipe clamp salesman. Dude is running around. Is that like C-clamps? Like yeah. Like for pipes? Yeah, is that but it's mean? like the real long ones that literally are on a pipe. Like yeah, just ones? like that. That's <laughs> how you use them. You <laughs> twist them. In my head, I was thinking like, uh, you know, the little... Yeah, like a little horseshoe it, clamp? No, for like a pipe. When you, a smoking pipe. I was thinking that. Um, there's no clamps there, though. No, there's not. Moving it's on. the hole in a yep. bowl. As Manley told police, <laughs> he first met Short in late 1946 when he struck up a conversation with her on a street corner. Quote, I asked her if she wanted a ride. She turned her head and wouldn't look at me. This is what he said in a 1947 interview reported by the LA Times. Quote, finally, she turned around and asked me if I didn't think it was wrong to ask a girl in a corner to get in my car. That auspicious beginning was the start of their relationship, and when Short needed a place to stay after the holidays, she sent Manley a message and asked him to pick her up. She sent him a message. There was no texting back then. It's like, what, just a, a sound letter? Photo. She just she sent a picture of herself. Snapchat? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So Manley and Short stayed in a hotel together. Ooh. Chastely, according to Manley. Mm-hmm. In other words, nothing happened. Yes, of course. Yeah, nothing. I would never do that. We social distanced the whole That's time. That's right. And then Manley drove uh, Elizabeth to Los Angeles. According to the Los Angeles Times, Short had lied and said she was meeting her sister at the Biltmore Hotel. Remember I said earlier? Mm-hmm. When her sister hadn't shown up by 6.30 on January 9th, Manley left and uh, left left her at the hotel to go home to his family. Okay, that's what he's saying. Though police considered him a Black Dahlia suspect, Manly passed a polygraph test, which is fucking bullshit. Sorry. They are 100% just garbage. We got to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Stop it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. took one recently. And, yeah, oh, yeah, you did, didn't I you? Did. Yeah, we were talking about that. It was uh, a very interesting time. They're so... It, 
Oh, but they refined the science, though. Oh, did they? They did. Duh. There used to be 50 different ways of doing a polygraph test. Now there's only 13. Of doing it? Of doing it. What does that mean? Like how you ask questions, what you're supposed to ask, how you use the uh, utensils to gain the information needed to accuse you of lying. All right. Listen, to mm -hmm. all of our amazing passengers that are listening right now, mm -hmm. I'm going to give you some really valuable advice. Mm -hmm. First of all, always ask for an attorney. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you did it or didn't do it. Ask for an attorney. If they tell you to take a polygraph test, tell them to eat dicks. No, you're not doing it. Okay? That's pretty much it. Yeah. Keep your fucking mouth shut. That's it. Yeah. Don't talk to cops. And I'm not saying that in, in a negative way towards cops because cops will tell you the same fucking thing when they're not involved in the investigation. They want you to say something incriminating mm -hmm. because that's how they can get a conviction. It makes their job easier. Correct. So don't give that to them. Don't do that. Cops, they know what they're doing. And I 100% I respect our police officers. I, it's a job that I, I would never be able to do. Mm -hmm. And I feel bad that every day they wake up and they risk their lives. Of course. Lives. Um, but, but don't talk to them. Mm -hmm. Like, seriously. If they're, they pull up to you and they're like, hey, uh... Just want to ask you a few questions. Nope. <laughs> uh-uh. You hablo no inglés. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. Nope. It's called attorney. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I plead the fifth. Yes. And if you don't have attorney, you still have the right to plead the fifth. You don't have to say a fucking word. Okay? Period. Mm -hmm. You don't have to. That's one of your inalienable, that's the word, rights. You don't have to say a fucking word. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> a lot of soapboxes today. I know. There's a lot today. I'm telling you, this this whole episode got me heated, man. Yeah. Fuck. And along with me listening to that other, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I got to get out of my own head. And today just being a rough day in general. Yeah, yeah. dude, it's all, it's all coming up. It's all just, it's a perfect cocktail. Oh, oh yeah. Thank you. Thank Cause you. it is. The bullet is pretty good. It is a pretty good cocktail. Hey, bullet sponsor us, please. So the LA times reports that his wife had committed, um, uh, had him committed in 1954 because he was hearing voices. Uh Oh, Oh. That same year, doctors gave Manly sodium pentothal, which can allegedly make people more truthful. That's that truth serum that people talk about. It's good stuff. And asked, <laughs> and asked him about the Black Dahlia case. And even with that, he was like, I know nothing. Mm. Robert Manley died on January 9th of 1986, exactly 39 years after he left Elizabeth Short at the Biltmore Hotel with a cloud of suspicion on him. How fucked up is that? Yeah. That's pretty wild. Man. And again, do I think he had anything to do? No. He had nothing to do with this. Yeah, nothing that leads towards him doing that. No. Uh, then there's Walter Bailey. Now this guy, a surgeon. Yeah, he sounds awfully familiar. Despite the Black Dahlia suspects considered over the years, LAPD detectives long suspected that Elizabeth Short's killer was a skilled surgeon. After all, someone had expertly, expertly cut her body in two. And Los Angeles Times columnist uh, Larry Hardish believes that Walter Bailey was the doctor who did it. So everyone's got their own little things going on here. Yeah. When Harnish started digging into the case in 1996, he found some unsettling connections between Bailey and Black uh, the Black Dahlia murder. As explained in the Washington Post, Bailey's daughter knew Short's sister. Okay, knew Elizabeth's sister. The doctor had an office near the Biltmore Hotel where Elizabeth was last seen. And her body was dumped a block away from Bailey's ex-wife's house. Okay. 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 <laughs> okay. What's more, Bailey seemed to match the profile of Elizabeth's killer drawn up by FBI profiler John Douglas. God, John Douglas. We, I want to do 
a complete bonus episode on John Douglas. Yeah. But such an amazing person. There really weren't that many suspects that saw the body get dropped off. So how do they have a suspect? No, it's the profile. Oh, the profile. It's a profile. So he's a profiler. He's the guy. He is the profiler. Duh. He basically wrote the book for the FBI. Um, so like the show, what is that show that I'm in love with? And it's on Netflix and... History's Greatest Mysteries. No, they had two... Oh, we got to talk. Oh, um, <laughs> um, they have two episodes of it with Mindhunter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about him and the book he wrote. No shit. Like, John Douglas is like the guy. He's the one that came up with the whole serial killer and profiling and shit like that. Wow. So, yeah, we, we will do a bonus episode on him because, man, is he amazing. So, um, as Harnish wrote, quote, he was desensitized to blood. Okay, well, he's a doctor, a surgeon, mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Was comfortable with a knife. He's a surgeon. Mm-hmm. And although he had a medical degree, he did, he did work with his hands rather than his brains. He also had a strong but troubled link to the immediate vicinity of the crime scene. Because that's where his wife right. was at or whatever. I mean, I don't know. I feel like you're kind of throwing some shade at the guy. Harnish believes that the doctor, fresh from a divorce and suffering from undiagnosed Alzheimer's disease, may have crossed paths with Short somewhere near the Biltmore Hotel. After spending a few days together, Harnish suspects something happened to incite Bailey's rage. This is all conjecture. This whole case is just pretty much conjecture, yeah. except for the one guy. Yeah, yeah George Podell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Possibly Short rebuffed him. Possibly she told a lie uh, she told before about having a son who had died at a young age. I guess she used to tell people that all the time. Really? Yeah. As a uh, history collection notes, Bailey actually did have a son who died at a young age. Oh, he, ooh, so maybe that kind of like stemmed him. Oh, and Short's body was found two days after the anniversary of his son's death. Oh, shit. Oh. And, of course, the kicker is that Short's body was found a 45-second walk from where Bailey's ex-wife lived. Harnish contends that it's a possible Bailey that, that Bailey dumped her there to terrorize his ex-wife. Now, she was posed and positioned. Okay, this is going to be really crude, and I don't mean this in a funny way at all, but <clears throat> she did eat excrement. Yeah. Maybe that's what he told her to do. Like eat shit. Eat shit. Die kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like if that came out, you know what I mean? Like that would be a serial killer-esque thing to do. So, so I feel like this, with this guy, it is, he definitely has more, um, circumstantial connection. Yes. Than like everybody else other than Hodel. Yeah. Um, but, I don't know. It seems so far it stretched. Does, it, it, and it, it doesn't say, does he have a, a, a record? Right. Has he ever been in trouble for doing anything else? Has he, you know, did he beat his ex-wife? Right. You know what I mean? There's, like, it doesn't say. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't understand. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Oh, and this one is just absolutely ridiculous, but I had to put it in here. Of all the Black Dahlia suspects listed here, perhaps the most surprising one is also the most famous. Acclaimed director and actin, act, actin, actor Orson Welles. Oh, God. That's right. Do you know who Orson Welles is? I do is? know who he is. I don't. I couldn't name a movie with him, but I know who he is. You, you've got. I've probably seen one. You, you have to know at least the one thing that he's like super known for. He incited panic on a radio show. Oh, um, Tom Cruise did a movie about it. God, that's with aliens coming to Earth. Uh, no. <laughs> wait. Oh, th- wait. The world at war thing or whatever? 
or War of the Worlds, whatever. There you shit. go. There yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he actually, um, just to give some preface here to, to people who may not who Orson Welles is, he actually narrated that whole thing, and people thought it was real. He narrated it? Yeah, on the radio. Oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, I do remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's pretty crazy. That's awesome. <laughs> so Mary Passios uh, discussed her theory about the famous filmmaker in her 1999 book, Childhood Shadows, The Hidden Story of the Black Dahlia Murder. Passios, who grew up with Elizabeth Short in Medford, Massachusetts, started researching the case to dispel myths about Short being a sex worker and a nobody. According to Salon, I'm appearing as a magazine or, or a website, I don't know. Uh, her research led her to believe that Wells could be behind the Black Dahlia murder. Quote, well, see, his name came up a few times. Passios told Salon of how Wells kept appearing in her research. It was his name that just kept popping up. Passios believed that Wells may have had a condition called diphasic personality, a disorder often attributed to serial killers in which someone can become violently aggressive when frustrated. She also points to a magic act uh, that Wells performed in the 1940s in which he pretended to cut a woman in half and mannequins uh, and mannequins Wells designed with a mutilated face like shorts for the lady from Shanghai. Shanghai. Okay, that's kind of weird. That's... Mm, yeah. Though the mutilated mannequins were not used in the film, Passios pointed out that Wells designed them three months before the murder. Oh, okay. Mm. When Passios was asked how her theory might damage the memory of Orson Welles, she was indignant. Quote, well, the whole thing is nobody cared about Elizabeth's memory. That's what she told Salon. Quote, you know, nobody cared, and I feel I agonized over it. I feel these are facts. Everything is factual. People can draw their own conclusions. In the end, the Black Dahlia suspects on this list are simply just that. To date, not a single person has been charged in the murder of Elizabeth Short. All right? That's what we're saying. Right. Do I think Orson Welles did that? Probably not. No, it is a little weird that he did very similar things. I mean, she he's got some, he's got some, yeah, there's some stuff, there's some things, there's some, you know, <laughs> but it's George Hodel. Yeah. It's George Hodel. Yeah. So now we may not know inconclusively who murdered Elizabeth Short, but it's a case that has stuck with us for almost a century. The world may never know who the sick and twisted quasi human being responsible for such a brutal and malicious killing was, but the fact remains that her memory needs to be put to rest. Someone somewhere knows something. Maybe it's someone you know. Maybe, passenger. Maybe it's you. And now, boys and girls, it's your favorite part of the show. The movie review. Which top ten movies will make the cut today? And on the movies, we're going to talk about the 10 best uh, movies based on unsolved mysteries. No, oh, because I mean, this is an unsolved one. It's so sad. So number 10 on our list is Pledge from 2001. Uh, every time I look at you, I'm just stopping myself from asking if you've ever seen anything. It sounds familiar, though. Yeah. So on his last day as a police detective, Jerry Black receives a case of murder of a murdered girl. Unable, unable, unable to review uh, reviews the uh, the grieving mother of the child. He makes it his personal issue. But when the case seems shut, with an alleged accused confessing about the crime and then killing himself afterwards, Jerry does not believe it. His suspicion grows into a paranoia of such extent that he ends up putting one of his near uh, one of his well, put somebody close to him, in, uh, their life in danger. Sean Penn's directorial debut. Ooh, I've never seen this. 
Pledge is the story of one man's determination to get the killer at any cost, be it his own morality or much worse, his own sanity. Jack Nicholson gave a uh, a fine performance as Detective Jerry Black. So it's Jack Nicholson hmm. and Sean Penn directorial debut. I've never heard of that. I don't know if I've never heard of it. Now I just have to see it. I don't know what the hell happened. <laughs> you broke it. I broke it. All right, number nine on our list is All Good Things from 2010. Seen that? Have you really? Mm-hmm. Shut your face. I actually have. Have you really? Yeah. All right. It was all right. Rich boy meets poor girl. This is uh, there is chemistry, a sexual tension in the air. The boy leaves his father's inheritance and elopes with the girl to have a life of their own. But the father has his own plans. The couple is lured, lured back, and as they somewhat with a discomfort try to adjust to their new life, they continue to grow apart. As all good things must come to an end, one day the girl vanishes. Poof. Just like that. Based on a series of actual murder and of a actual murder. I don't know why I didn't say that. And disappearance director um, Andrew Jarecki's All Good Things stars Ryan Gosling. That's why you've seen it. What? And Kirsten Dunst as the unfortunate couple. I've never seen that either. No, it was all right. It was not one of his better movies, but it was uh, it came on TV one day and, you know, I just happened to be watching it. All right. Number eight is 1966, Blow Up. Oh, yeah, this was an amazing movie that I've not seen. Oh, my God. <laughs> the 60s, the city of London, culturally vibrant and full of glamour. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. All in all, a day in the life of Thomas. He's a fashion photographer and lives a life of, well, let's say dubious morality in a day of full events. While going through a fo- um, the photographs of a couple that he captured ra- uh, rather surreptitiously in the park, he discovers a dead body in it. He goes to the same place and finds the body to be the man from the couple. Odd. He took a picture of a couple and saw a dead body in the picture. And then he goes back and it's the guy from the couple. Huh. Wait, what? <laughs> Afraid, he comes back to his studio to find it ransacked, but with one photo left, that of the dead body. The next day, the body vanishes. Considered a masterpiece till date, director Michelangelo Antonioni's... <laughs> That's his name. Antonioni's blow up has inspired many filmmakers over the years, including Brian De Palma and Francis Ford Coppola. Oh shit. Hmm. Might want to check that one out. Yeah. From 1966, huh? Blow up. Look at a camera. It's fucking yeah, from this angle. It looked like a, a dinosaur. It is. It's a dinosaur camera. You didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> Number seven, 2003 memories of murder. Serial killers are often troubled and traumatized by some events in their lives. Uh, and you know, which occurred earlier. The serial killer of Memories of Murder is found to be a, oh my God, raping and killing young women wearing red colored clothes. Okay. Though it could be a plausible explanation of some uh, tragic event of his past, but one thing stands out. The face of a murderer is rather plain. He could be any of us, you or me. An investigation running through the eyes of two cops of distinctly uh, different styles. Memories of Murder is a taut and edgy thriller. It is based on the real-life series of serial killing in South Korea, which remain unsolved to this day. Damn. Is that the one we covered? No, that wasn't a serial. That was just a house killing. We yeah. got to look into that then. Yeah. What is this one? Put it in your notes. Find okay. It. Okay. Find it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Just do it. Do it. Uh, number six, love this fucking movie. 2001 Memento. A man keeps forgetting his recent memories due to an accident. Needs to kill the men responsible for his wife's death and his current state. The only clues are tattooed on his body. The viewer goes through the same emotion as the protagonist, albeit in a little bit different way. 
The sequences in color tells the story in a forward-progressing manner, whereas the black-and-white sequence depict the past. That's right. If you guys haven't seen this, Guy Pierce, Carrie and Moss, have you seen this movie? No, I just see a picture of a half-naked man. Dude, it's freaking amazing. So it kind of goes backwards in sequence. Okay. Oh, so you're saying like the, the way the movie starts and ends? Yeah, like you you kind of... It's it's super awesome. I love it. You know what else is awesome? What? The thing you told me to look up. What? Uh, it's going to be awesome. Lee Chun Jai is uh, the Hua Song serial murder Oh, in South Korea. Oh, that's coming up here soon. Yeah, it's supposed to be... Uh, Compared to the Zodiac Killer of the U.S. Oh, shit. And this is from 1986 and 1994. Wow. Yeah. All right. Stay tuned, listeners. Yeah. Hey, speaking of 2007, number five on our list, Zodiac. <laughs> How do we do that? Yeah, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. And, uh, of course, you know, this is RDJ and uh, the other, your other... Yeah. Fancy feast yeah. over there. Fancy feast? Yeah, it's your fancy feast, yeah. <laughs> what are we, cats? It's a good movie. It's cool. Obviously, they're going about the Zodiac killings. I don't know. RDJ is yeah. always awesome. Yeah. But so, so is he. He's a great actor, I think. Yeah, yeah. Jake Gyllen... Gyllenhaal? Gyllenhaal? Nobody knows how balls. to say his name. I don't think his last name's actually that. Just juggling my balls. Oh, shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, number four is 2009's The White Ribbon. Hmm. Uh, the village doctor falls from the, uh, from the horse as it stumbles on a wire stretched across its path. A barn is burnt. Young children are badly beaten and almost blinded. A parakeet is found impaled. Jesus. Resembling a cross. Everything that occurs in this pre-World War era of a German village is disturbing and till the end remains unexplained. Michael Haneke's The White Ribbon tells the story of the strange village where a white ribbon has to be worn by anyone who's committed a sin. It's a poetic nod to the later Nazi regime's ghastly acts committed upon innocent Jews labeled by the star of David as their identification. Jeez, I've never heard of that one either. Yeah, neither have I. Number three, love this one. This movie fucked me up as a kid. Alfred Hitchcock's 1963, The Birds. I don't think I've seen this, but I think I've heard of it. Oh, boy. It, listen, I'm not even going to read this thing. A bunch of birds start killing people. Oh, shit. And it's fucked up. It's like a bunch of crows. Like a murder <laughs> of crows just killing people. And it, dude, it messed me up as a kid. Uh, number two, 1960, La Ventura. Director, oh, another one from Michelangelo Antonioni. Funny part, I actually watched part of that. Shut your face. No, I did. It was on uh, Hallmark movies. Not Hallmark. Uh, what, <laughs> what was the <laughs> not Hallmark? <laughs> the other old timey show, uh, like a, AMC or something. Yeah, I think it was AMC. It was like it was, Hallmark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you just dimed yourself out. Yeah, a little bit. You watching. Hallmark movies. Uh, let's say this one is the story of a young woman disappearing uh, during a yachting trip across the coast of Sicily. The search for her brings her former lover and best friend together and a disturbing relationship begins. While the story is woven around the search for a missing woman, its true purpose is to construct a narrative without it being uh, without being centered around wow, they spelled centered so weird around a major event and still being able to captivate the audience. The true motives of the central characters are never explained fully, and as the film ends, the viewer is forced to accept that some events remain unexplained, just like life does. <laughs> wow, that's pretty poignant. And number one, 1988, The Vanishing. While driving through a county road in France, a couple stops at a fuel station to buy supplies and gas. The girl uh, walks into the store and never comes back. Over the next few years, her boyfriend keeps looking for her. While he receives postcards from a mysterious man claiming to be the perpetrator behind it. 
Eventually, the abductor meets the boyfriend and presents him an unique deal. In order to know what happened to the girl, the boyfriend has to experience what she went through. Featuring one of the most unsettling climaxes of all times, The Vanishing is one of the frightening tales of a man looking for closure. What the fuck? I don't know. Do I want to watch that? I kind of want to watch that. I kind of want to watch that, yeah. Ooh. The Vanishing. It's, it's very French. Everything is French, though. Oh, but are they smoking cigarettes? Yeah, it probably. <laughs> Eating their baguettes. Baguettes. And croissant. And croissant. Saying bonjour to everyone. <laughs> fucking loved France. <laughs> Everyone there was so awesome. Like I told you, like they could be yelling at each other. Dude, so unfo- Bonjour. unfortunately, Rush Hour 3 kind of like poisoned my mind when it comes to France because I think as soon as they know that you're American, they're like, oh, you American make me stick. No, dude, they were so great. Really? They were, seriously. And, and, and I know we do have some French listeners. I mean, we have listeners in like in everywhere, every country. Yeah. And Listen, I loved your country so much. I mean, obviously it was Paris and it's very, you Not know, Paris. I didn't get to experience the the non-touristy part of it. Yeah, like I would but wanna, I'll be back for I would, sure. I want to go more north of France, like on the border of France and Germany. Yes. Mainly because apparently my family has a, uh, my other side of the family or whatever has a, a winery over there, but I just want to enjoy it because it's right next to the mountains and it's going to be so beautiful. I just thought everybody was amazing. Seriously. Yeah. I never had an issue with a single person over there. You had some really good food while you were over there too. Food? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm very jealous. Oh, my. That restaurant we went to? Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Que bella. Mm. Ah, it's beautiful. Chef's kiss, huh? Oh, it's so good. Okay, so listen. That has been the Black Dahlia, Elizabeth Short, her story. I've I've not done this one kind of purposefully. Yeah. Like, I didn't want to, like, really, because it's been kind of, like, beaten to death. But I'm really glad we did because there's a lot of stuff I didn't know. Yeah. But it really leads me to believe that, A, yes, one guy did it. I'm on that George Hodel ride. Yeah. 100%. Right I think that guy it. did. And I think the guy had some shit going on. And, you know, he has surgical expertise. He was a doctor at one point in time. Like, whatever the case may have been. So that's where I'm at. Where are you at? You you, you on that? Yeah, I'm on the Hodel uh, train as well, too. But, I mean, all in all, we, we know who the real criminal here is. The LAPD. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate to say that, too. Like, I mean... What, 1940s, like, 50s LAPD? I mean, there was a lot of, you know, corruption and stuff like that. So, I I, I, I... I get... Well, I mean, that's anywhere you it's go. everywhere. Yeah. And it sucks because even though they know, for the most part, and like that one prosecutor from the DA's office said, like, if that person were alive, He'd be we would have indicted them. Yeah. So, in other words, we have to keep it open... I don't understand why we can't close it and say, listen, we know who the killer was. You know what I mean? Put her memory to freaking rest, yeah. man. Like, it's it sucks. This poor girl. And I don't give a shit if she was out giving out her punani to everybody that asked for it. Yeah. Who fucking cares? Do you, boo-boo? Because if a dude's out there doing it, he's considered a stud. Right. Especially at that time. Yeah. Oh, he gets more ass than a toilet seat. Uh, you know what I mean? All right, Slim Shady, calm down. Yeah, what did... Does that sound like him? That was from Eminem. No, that's goes way more ass than a toilet. He got that from somebody. Else. He probably did, yeah. but that's where I know it from. Yeah, uh, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's it's that whole uh, that double edged sword. Yes, and it's stupid, and I hate it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I feel bad for the lady that lost her life, probably because she happened to just sow some oats. You know, she was a quote unquote aspiring actor actress out there. So maybe she was hurting for money one day or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it sucks, but yeah. you know, I just one day I just hope they put the, the 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 period at the end of that sentence. You know what I mean? Just 
There it is. Like we we know who did this. And even if it, listen, like I was saying earlier, there's been so many cases closed on like way less circumstantial evidence yeah, than really. any of this. Let's just go for it. Maybe because there's so much circumstantial evidence for so many different potential suspects. That's why they won't give a concrete answer on that. I don't because know. I, I think it's just because they're both there's dead. There's at least two that, other than Hodel, that are plausible. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Plausible. Yes. Right. I had to put the air quotes in there because yeah. we all know who the real victim or killer is. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, I want to know, we want to know yeah. what you guys think. After hearing the story, if you didn't know the story, where do you think? Are you on the, the George Hodel train like we are? Or are you, do you believe that one of these, do you think Orson Welles did it? <laughs> nope. See, before doing this research on here, I thought it was that Mal- the Mulaney guy or whatever, the red guy or whatever, the, the last guy that saw her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the redheaded guy. The redheaded guy. That's yeah. the guy who I thought it was uh, originally was, yeah. was him. So. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't now, think it was. Uh, getting more information that's... Uh... Because let's just say hypothetically mm-hmm. that you didn't have any kind of like surgical knowledge or anything like that. To do something like that and then pose the, the body afterwards and everything that they did, that is some methodical... Like you have issues. Yeah, you you're you're trying to show a message. Like you're trying to get what you want out out. It's personal as fuck. That's why I said earlier about the whole like she ate her own excrement thing. Maybe it was a thing at his ex wife or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it could have been something as stupid as that. And some well, people, for the other doctor, for the other doctor. Now, you know what I mean? he's kind of on my list now too. I mean, he's down a little bit further. Yeah, a lot further. But he's definitely on my list now. Yeah. But I still think that that Odell, Odell was yeah. if 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 <laughs> everything that we heard is true. Right. And unfortunately, you know what I mean, I, after three or four books now, it, it and it's, might it's be just, watered down. It's such an old uh, case that I don't know if we'll ever know, dude. And it sucks. Yeah, it does suck. Because that, that poor woman's memory is just, it's tainted with this whole like, oh, she was this and she was that. It doesn't matter. She was murdered. Yeah. Like period. Like I don't, it doesn't matter who she was and what she was doing unless she was like, I don't know, fucking, killing kittens with her heels or stealing her grandmommy's pension yeah like you, you know, know what i mean, mean? like it, yeah. she didn't deserve that no. especially that no right so we want to know what you think let us know you can do that by going over to the midnight train podcast.com and of course while you're there do us a favor click on the patreon button become a patreon subscriber you can do that for as little as five bucks a month you can get all kinds of cool stuff like stickers and custom shirts and all kinds of Great stuff. You but mean super sweet stuff? Super, super sweet. Right. But you can get all that and all the bonuses. Because yeah. the bonuses are where it's at. Yes, they are. And, of course, as he just mentioned, you can go to the store and you can buy yourself some super sweet, super sweet merchandise like the It's Just Another Mannequin Monday shirt. That Fucking we love that shirt. Earlier. Get your butts over there. Get yourself some merchandise. Get the bonuses. It's five bucks a month. And, listen, it's five dollars. Just do it can't if you can't do it because listen times are hard just keep listening to the, the, the regular episode that's yeah. all i care yeah tell your friends you, like i said listening. you tell two friends and then they tell two friends right but hey just keep it this way i'm unemployed and i still put five bucks in. <laughs> <laughs> and you're you're on the show yeah, yeah. <laughs> so listen we uh, uh we obviously love music and we want future generations of musicians to have accessibility and music education so we've decided not decided we do every month we give to a great cause to the save the music foundation their mission is to help students schools and communities reach their full potential through the power of making music because damn it it's fun mm-hmm. and it's just i don't know it's it's 
there's something about it. It gives you a sense of purpose. You know what I mean? You're creating something. Yeah, you're Almost creating like a something. Right. A baby. A baby. I made a baby. What is it called? A song. <laughs> What's the song called? Ugh. <laughs> it's beautiful. Slap its ass. <laughs> As one of the leading music foundations in the United States, the support, uh, they support um, uh, their partner communities in three different ways by donating musical instruments and musical technology, providing support services for teachers, and advocating for musical education. We're going to donate, and we do donate 20% of our merch sales, um, so when you buy a shirt or whatever like that, and our Patreon donations from this show as well as Icons and Outlaws, our other show, which is it's it's coming. <laughs> it's I know I say it every week, but it's coming. It's coming. It's just it's taking a minute. So do us a favor, support the show, get a ton of bonuses, and help a great cause. And for more information or to donate personally, go to savethemusic.org. Right? That's O R G. O R G. Right. Oh. Org. Org. Right. And while you're on the interwebs, don't forget to follow us on all the socials. Please do. We're on the Twitters. Mm-hmm. We're on the Insta Giggles. Oh, yeah. On the Ticker Talkers. Oh, nice. On the YouTubes. Oh, we are. Yep. And if you listen on Spotify or on Apple Music, do us a favor. Give us a rating. Any any place you can rate us. Five stars, five thumbs, five middle fingers, whatever it is, give it to us. That should totally be a thing. It should be. Just fucking five, five middle, middle fingers. fingers. That'd yeah. be amazing. Yeah. I'll take it. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Unless, like, it's out of 100. <laughs> yeah, then that wouldn't be very nice. <laughs> Don't do that to us. How about two middle fingers? That's it. Just two? Just two. So you either get none, or you get one, or you get both. I like both. I like both. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to start our own rating, <laughs> yeah. our own rating uh, uh, program here. So, listen, we can't thank, enough, uh, thank you all enough for all the love and support. We do receive on a daily basis for all the socials. Everybody talking about stuff. You guys are amazing. You keep the train choo-chooing down the tracks so thank you again for listening hey, but hey a very special thank you to our fearless executive producers our first class passengers our uh, <coughs> poopers <laughs> if you will <laughs> to Mindy F George DeJesus Megan McTerry Thomas Love Sabota Amanda Denz Chris, uh, Chris Lucas Zachary Danielson Joseph Ramo Kelly Ryan Nathan Dickman Nicholas Cooper Caitlin McKenney Trent Scott Spencer Dunlap Jacob Cook Maggie Brothers Miles Campbell Brian Gunzelman Pumpkin Escobar Mac Doherty Turner Cox Sydney Sayer Janet she told me mm-hmm. the other day by the way mm-hmm. I've been saying her name incorrectly you have I have shame on you it's Janet Cheryl not Cheryl so Janet I am personally apologizing for how I've mispronounced your last name for this and for like the past what three and a half years. <laughs> All I have to say is he reads the script. I don't. So it's Cheryl. It's Cheryl. Janet Cheryl. And she is a fabulous human being. It's gonna be so weird for me now from now I know, on because you've been saying it that way for so I know, long. I've been saying it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to Chad Flint, Chris McLeod, Justin Kowalczyk, good to see you t- today, buddy. And thank you so much for stopping in. Rob Webb from the Funbox Podcast, Christina Skelton, and Jessica Bartolome from the Sisters Skelton Podcast. Our sisters from another Mister to Marie Gibbs to Chainsaw. What the fuck? Jigsaw, Rick Resler, Courtney Bachelor, Katie Brabenek. And you ready for it? I don't know. Am I? I don't know. Oh boy. To our boy. Oh boy. Bill Birch. Oh, good for you. Oh, that was. <laughs> oh, good for you. There it is. 
So do us a favor. Stay safe out there, passengers. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We want to know what you think about the Black Dahlia. Who do you think it was? And and, and there needs to be some closure in this. Definitely does. We want to know. But as always, at choo choo, motherfucker. Now go home and get your fucking shine box. And be nice to each other, you sons of bitches.